You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 421. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at the socially distant APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 16th of April, 2020. Today's episode, hundreds of U.S. pilots and flight attendants test positive for COVID-19. In the Congo, a security guard accidentally shoots an Air France jet as it's landing. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tale, the butcher bird. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, flight 421 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger, Emmy Award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Wins. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, um, airline pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, which we like to call Acme Airlines. And joining me today to help me with analyzing the news and answering your feedback is from her lakeside home in the Carolinas, doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Step. Hey, Captain Jeff. Good afternoon. It's good to see you all. Looking forward to a great show today. Yes, I am as well. And from the Valley of the Sun, world traveler, airline, airplane mechanic, Brightling Cognoscenti and Fitness Hound and International Air Freight Captain. It's Miami Rick. Hello, hello, everybody. Glad to be back. How's everybody doing? Great. Great. And joining us from across the pond and is uh, in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Well, hi there, guys and girls. Isn't it brilliant to be back again? Seems like only yesterday I was on the <laughs> set up. Now we've got another one. It's great, isn't it? Well, you'll have to tell us about that. Is the oh, quiz well. starting yet? <laughs> this is not a quiz. Well, I guess in a way it is. And also joining us from the northwest Atlanta suburbs, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pleasure boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Great to see everybody today. All right. And let's jump right on into the news. Stand by for news.
Yes, the COVID-19 pandemic is still upon us, and who knows for how long it's going to affect us. But just a couple of items in the news regarding COVID-19 and how it's affecting the airlines. Uh, Several, uh, well, at least 100 American Airlines flight attendants have the coronavirus, and I think that I've seen reports. I know at Acme, we have uh, over 90 pilots who have been... um, uh, diagnosed with the uh, virus, probably more than that now. And uh, but basically, the the general uh, news here is that because we are essential employees out there, uh, we are exposed um, much more than most people that are hunkering down in their homes. And uh, just kind of not really surprising that many flight attendants and pilots have been exposed to the virus. Now, I know the airlines really are trying to do what they can to protect us. Uh, at uh, Acme, they have a, a pretty intensive cleaning uh, routine they go through and fogging and all that kind of stuff. So I just witnessed that myself. Uh, just got back from a two-day trip yesterday. And uh, you can definitely smell the, the fogging agent. I'm thinking that's probably going to kill me. <laughs> so who knows? At least I won't get COVID-19. Uh, that's that's interesting you say that because that uh, as you know I just finished training a couple of a uh, couple of weeks ago and uh, between each simulator session, um, the uh, personnel at Boeing Training Center would go down and fog the entire box and for the first uh, first couple of minutes there, you were uh, you know you're you're flying high in more than one way so uh, <laughs> that was quite interesting. <laughs> now Rick, next time we do that takeoff, let's keep it under fifty degrees pitch up at, at first. Exactly, and try and try try not to do it inverted. Just you know, just, just, just fly out normal. Just pitch, pitch for a V two plus twenty. Uh, you'll be fine. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, and, and I, I need to stand corrected on something there, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, the company released something that I I knew that there was a uh, a um, filter, but and it was it's called coalescer fi- filter the bag back there uh, on our airplane but it indeed we do have hepa uh yeah we do and we, do, uh, so. we have 40% recirculation as well so yep, both of those so. things kind of surprised me but uh surprise surprised me being as well as i know the aircraft mm-hmm. uh, that that we have that also i in your uh, cleaning kit did you have one set of gloves or two set of gloves for the flight deck a cockpit um not sure i didn't use them uh because they they're giving us the cockpit bag that has the that uh, matrix solution in there that bag that yeah. uh, cleaning wipe, and uh, I had to split the the gloves up with my FO because he had, you know, he won't clean his side, and there's only one set of gloves in there. So, so you're oh, yeah. saying that you you got the thumb, he got the index finger, you got the middle finger, the guy got the fourth finger, then you got the pinky finger. Uh, I, I got I I got fully fingered so. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, fully fingered gloves. Uh, three, four, five, <laughs> six, seven, eight. In this eight bag. Eight fingers? Eight gloves. Eight gloves. Oh, eight uh, fingers. I think when eight I was gonna, I was, no, those are some weird gloves you guys got over there. Yeah. No, but you know what? Actually, going back to the research, I think I think it's pretty standard. It's about 40% research, and I'm I th- and uh I'm I'm aware that um uh, HEPA filters have always been the uh, the norm. On, on airlines, yeah, but this was yeah. a McDonnell Douglas, not a Boeing. So and this is also built in, you know, the seventies, eighties. Well, technically, it is now. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> really, the opposite of what that what you just said. <laughs> technically, it's really a Boeing. I mean, a McDonnell Douglas. Um, 
But it uh, makes sense, Jeff, because think of it when when they started flying these airplanes, there was smoking on the aircraft, right? Mm-hmm. In the back of the aircraft. True. So that would make sense that they would have a, a, a heftier filtration system built into that generation. Of so a lot of people assume, though, because the uh, company put out a video talking about the cleaning and the recirculation and a lot of kind of stuff, and they they didn't say a thing about the 88s and 90s. And so we, uh, most people just assumed that, well, because they're not mentioning it, they're it's probably because we don't have that kind of filtration system. But we do. So it's good to know. Um, I think I read something uh, regarding that. Uh, the Boeings, at least at our company, they say about 50, uh, approximately 50% uh, research on the on those, a little bit higher. But uh, anywho, and then I think uh, the other uh, figure they put out there was that uh, it, a complete uh, – um, I forgot the term they use, um, but the air is replaced every two minutes. Uh, the rate of whatever replacement replacement yeah is two minutes, which is pretty so good. So, like you got to hold your breath for two minutes yes. before you can take the next one. Yeah, so if, if someone coughs near you, or, 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 or if you let out some <laughs> gas, you just kind of hold your breath for two yeah. minutes. Fair Fair enough. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, we on 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 really long long flights back when we used to fly passengers, we used to um um we had a procedure where you turn the recirculation fans off every three hours for five minutes to uh renew the air there and um and and, uh actually with the recirculation fans off um your your fuel consumption goes up just ever so slightly so that's why we have recirculation fans on uh for uh, you know to 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 not have to you know burn that extra fuel if you don't have to so the recirc fans i guess take some of the load off the pneumatics uh, apparently exactly yeah Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right. Um, let's see. Dean Kamen, you remember the old uh, the thing that was going to revolutionize the way we we travel? Transportation was just going to be something that you know they're going to build new highways just big enough for the Segway. You remember all that? I don't know. Maybe you guys were too young. No. <laughs> yeah. Highways for for Segways. Yeah. Uh, when they know. when they uh, Dean Kamen is the uh, guy that invented the Segway. And uh, who was it? Um, Steve Jobs, I think, was really excited about it. And uh, the other guy at uh, Apple, uh, Wozniak, were just like going crazy, thinking that this was just going to completely change the way we travel. And everybody was going to be on their segways. No cars. <laughs> like, no, it didn't turn out that way. Yeah, my, my 35-mile commute to work would be awesome on a segway. Yeah, wouldn't it? No. Um, they're not no. even legal in the United well, you know Kingdom. What I, if there's which I any, think is very unfair. If there's anybody here on the panel, I would say that Steph would be the one that would think that that was a really cool thing. Oh yeah, she'd have. Three. I'd be easy run around at work. And here's another thing: How would you drive a Segway on the wrong side? You know, in England, how do you? Because you know, yeah, that doesn't even make sense. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how you do that. So. Well, you wouldn't do it for very long if you're on the wrong side because you get run over. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, we went down a rabbit hole. I'm sorry, um, or a rat hole in this case. Uh, so. Dean Kamen uh, called up Fred Smith, the uh, CEO and chairman of FedEx Corporation, and said, hey, we need one of your big airplanes because I'm going to get a whole bunch of PPE, personal protection equipment, for this hospital or hospitals in New Hampshire. And uh, so uh, Fred said, all right, Dean, we'll get you one to get one to you right away. I don't know if he sounds like that or not, but um, that's the He's best. I don't know. I have no idea why I said I had a southern accent like that. I really don't. It just kind of came out. Memphis. <laughs> yeah, Memphis. There you go. I don't know. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Anyway, uh, they uh, the 
healthcare workers, first responders, and others on the front lines in the fight against COVID-19 across New Hampshire are the main beneficiaries of a shipment of 91,000 pounds of protective equipment that arrived at Manchester Boston Regional Airport Sunday. Inventor Dean Kamen facilitated the shipment via FedEx cargo plane from Shanghai to the Granite State. The state is purchasing the entire shipment of medical supplies, which state officials said includes 6,140 boxes of protective equipment containing 6.6 million masks, 50,000 face shields, and 24,000 Tyvek coveralls. All right. Anyway. So that was kind of uh, some positive Good news for a couple of my uh, best friends from med school work in the Manchester, New Hampshire area. Oh, neat. One is an emergency medicine doc. The other one's an OBGYN. So this is good news for them. Very good news. Definitely. All right. Um, let's see. Scrolling down. I guess that's the only couple of items we have in our COVID-19 folder. But uh, oh, no, I take that back. Air Canada. I've skipped the top one. Air Canada has reconfigured three 777-300s to accommodate cargo-only operations. They removed 442 seats, allowing double the cargo capacity. These aircraft will fly critical medical and vital supplies to and across Canada. So there's some more news regarding COVID-19 and adaptations in this new, this new normal that we're living in. And anything else to say before we move on to other news items? I've heard people call passengers self-loading cargo. Yes, they are. Sometimes they need help. If you take the seats out, they can have a problem. True. (laughs) Very much so. I don't know where I was going with that. Just just the regular cargo here, not the self-loading. We're not sure either, Nick, but uh, just you want me to just move on then? Yes. Okay. Uh, (laughs) B. Uh, this is a good one. <laughs> well, it depends on your perspective, I guess. Not for the guy that got ejected. Uh, French pensioner ejected from fighter jet after accidentally grabbing bang seat handle. Bang seat handle? Is that, you call them bang seats over there? Yeah, nickname, yeah. Okay, never heard of that. Uh, this is from theregister.co.uk. The Rafale B jet from which the unfortunate Frenchman got to experience parachuting as well as flying. That's a picture caption that I should have erased. Um, An elderly and reluctant Frenchman was ejected from a French Air Force fighter during a retirement day jolly and narrowly a retirement day and narrowly missed taking the pilot with him. An investigation report littered with unintentional howlers has revealed the unnamed 64 year old was ejected. How did I do, stuff? Ejecte. Close enough. Okay. You just did ejaculation. Well, that's another... Yeah, did I just say that in French? My my apologies. Uh, From the two-seat Raphael B from a height of 2,500 feet in March last year, after grabbing his ejection seat handle to steady himself, France's BEA-E aviation investigator concluded, although the... BEA's full report is in French. Aviation News website Aerotime Hub translated and summarized its contents, revealing the full comedy of errors triggered by a group of enthusiastic colleagues hoping to give their workmate a send-off to remember. (laughs) They did. As he was an employee of a defense contractor, the pensioner's bosses had no difficulties asking the French Air Force to let him in the backseat of one of its Dassault Rafale fighter jets as a surprise retirement gift. Nonetheless, the unfortunate Frenchman had, quote, never expressed a desire to carry out this type of flight, and in particular on Raphael, 
uh, which didn't stop his colleagues luring him to the Saint-Dizier airbase anyway. Did I do okay on that one? I think Jeff's French just consists of going, oh, wee, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> he just holds his nose like this, folks. He just holds his nose. Like... <laughs> oh, shut up. He's going to Google Translate in advance and listen to the uh, pronunciations. So. <laughs> the flight itself was a routine military training sortie for the three jets carried out in perfect weather. Our pensioner heart pounding at between 136 and 142 beats per minute as recorded by his smartwatch, underwent a quick medical exam from a doctor four hours before being shown by the pilot how to put on his safety gear. <laughs> well, they they left they let the pilot put his safety gear on? Mm, that's not a good yeah. idea. Mm. Um, and you'll see why. Uh, unfortunately, no one properly checked him as he clambered into the cockpit, meaning his helmet visor was up, his anti-G pants were not worn properly, <laughs> his helmet and oxygen mask were both unattached, and his seat straps were not tight enough. <laughs> this is a recipe for disaster right here. Nonetheless, a mechanic gave them both a cursory check, strapped a GoPro to an uh, approved bulkhead mounting point. So the hapless passengers uh, gurning or journey. I've never heard, seen that word before. Gurning. Gurning. So okay. It's a person who can uh, pull funny faces. Oh. Is the gurner. I should have known that. Um <laughs> So the hapless passenger's gurning would be preserved for all time and nodded to the pilot to close the transparent cockpit canopies. Things got worse when the pilot took off from northeastern France's airbase. Rather than <laughs> the gentle ascent at 10 to 15 degrees that airline passengers experience, or 20 degrees if you're flying a mad dog. Um, where am I? Uh, I've skipped my place. Here we go. Uh, the Frenchman at the Rafale's controls carried out a typical fighter jet departure and climbed at 47 degrees, generating a load factor of around plus 4G. <laughs> That's a lot of G for, a, for an older gentleman. Then as he leveled off, he subjected his passenger to a negative load factor of about 0.6G or minus 0.6. Forces exerted by Britain's most G-force intensive roller coaster, Alton Towers Rita, max out at plus 4.7G. Ooh, that's a lot of G-forces for a roller coaster. I think. I don't know. Hmm. Seems it, doesn't it? Any there roller coaster go. experts on the panel? Any ideas? No? No. Okay. No. Just seems like a lot, doesn't it? Four point. Maybe it's just a very momentary G-force. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine it's sustained it, but oh, still no. four point. That would, that's a lot. That's a lot. If you sustained it for more than a couple of seconds, I think you'd have a lot of people passed out. Oh, you'd black out. Absolutely. Yeah. Unless you do the hook maneuver right here. Okay. Which uh, I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure <laughs> Nick knows about. So basically, um, so my uh, my instrument instructor back when I learned to fly, he was a um, a former Navy guy, and um, their um, fighter pilots are taught this um, this breathing uh, breathing method, in which when they're pulling G's, they they uh, I don't they don't really scream out hook, but they just kind of go they just tighten their muscles oh, yeah. while saying hook. You know, oh. and then that's supposed to, that's supposed to keep their their the blood from uh, from uh, pooling in the lower extremities. Obviously, aided by 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 G suits and all that stuff. So, yeah, uh, that's not what we called it in the Air Force. But yeah, no. we did the same kind of thing. We didn't say anything about what, hook. What do you call it in the Air Force? Um, it's just an anti G maneuver. What well, they call it? Something I just don't remember what the name of it is. Squeeze. Ah. Um, what do you remember, uh, Nick? What did you guys call it? Your maneuver that you guys performed to keep your consciousness. 
<laughs> Can you spell that? And, and that is a quote. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is a quote. U G H. Okay. Thank hey, you. If you want a really good uh, explanation of what they're talking about, um, probably uh, don't. Marcus from um, uh, what's the name of his podcast? I'm a good time. Oh my good Thank you. Um, he did an episode where he did some flights with the Thunderbirds, and mm-hmm. they go through this in great detail. I don't remember which episode number that was, but. Yeah, I think that Marcus probably got a little bit better um, safety check and briefing than this French. It sounded very thorough, <laughs> unlike what was going on here. But good, great episode. Um, I highly recommend listening to it. Yeah, yes. and then uh, Sean on the on the chat room there he just explained uh, the maneuver and how it works. It's, it's it's he says it's indeed a navy technique. So yeah, that that makes sense. Okay, now let's see. The anti-G strain maneuver, the AGSM, is a critical skill used by fighter and acrobatic pilots to yeah we didn't call it an agsm and we didn't call it the anti-g straining maneuver either i just don't remember exactly what we call it's it called in the fighting airport. constipation yeah anyway it's very important especially in the t-37 believe it or not has the highest g onset rate of any of the jets in the uh, air force inventory at the time i was flying it because there was no protection you could just snap snatch that uh, stick back and go right up to seven g's or more uh, so you had to be careful. Um, most other airplanes had you know, systems to prevent you from the uh, G onset too quickly. But uh, I digress. Um, oh, and interestingly, um, Omega Tau podcast, Marcus uh, Volter's wonderful podcast, um, he revealed to me, and I think he's revealed to the public, that really the main reason why he started the podcast was so that one day he could fly with the Air Force Thunderbirds. True statement. Yeah, that was a true statement. Absolutely. And yeah, we were all worried that having done it, he was going to stop. <laughs> yeah. <for> all, <laughs> all right. So not the case. Where do we uh, stop here? We were talking about G-forces. Okay, our pensioner, loose in his straps, not really wanting to be there, and totally unused to being flung around like a ragdoll, reached out to grab something and hang on for dear life. He picked the worst possible handhold, the trigger handle for the ejection seat. Oops. After the customary loud bang and whoosh, he ceased to be part of the jet's payload. How do I say that with a French accent? Bung. Whoosh. How's that? <laughs> um, with the force of the ejection tearing his unsecured helmet and mask from his face. The Raphael B's command ejection system is meant to fire both seats if one of the crew pulls the handle. A very confused pilot, however, was still sitting in his newly canopy-free jet wondering what the heck had just happened. He returned to land, conscious all the time that the seat could fire at any moment without warning. Luckily, it didn't go off. Both the pilot, his reluctant and probably now aviation-phobic passenger, and the aircraft all landed safely. The passenger said he had a complete lack of knowledge of the aeronautical environment and its forces, (laughs) having never flown on a military aircraft. The surprise effect associated with a lack of military aeronautical experience, therefore, resulted in creating and maintaining significant stress for the passenger throughout the morning, concluded a sympathetic BEA-E, which founded that the margins of decision left to the passenger to possibly refuse the flight are perceived as almost non-existent. So, okay, let me get this straight. He didn't want to do this, but he did it anyway. Apparently. No, you'll be fine. Go ahead. It's, it's going to be a great time. You'll enjoy yeah, it. Exactly. I thought it means no. Yeah, well, maybe he didn't. He, I suspect he doth not protest enough. 
No, although I suspect he was very much jollied on by all his work colleagues and he felt a blight. I can understand the peer pressure to do that. But um, what I don't understand is the Raphael's uh, command eject system because that seems a slightly weird one to me where you can't turn it off when you've got a passenger in the back seat. So that's what we would do with all our military aircraft. We were flying someone in the back seat who was qualified. We would turn off the command eject so that the both seats could go independently. And uh, also a little worrying that the they could fire the back seat, and then the possibility exists that it would it well it should have done both seats at the same time. Yeah. And because it didn't, he's flying all the way back with the possibility that it could at any time. Yeah, yeah. I, I, as I read it, the uh, back seat, the force of the ejection from the back seat damaged the piping that carries the gases because all these things are gas powered. So oh, that's the quickest way of doing it. But that shouldn't have happened. No, it shouldn't. Some of the systems apparently in the front seat ran. So I think the the canopy, whether it was jettisoned or shattered, I don't know quite the system here, uh, activated. Um, but the seat didn't actually fire. So there you go. Which is a good thing, I guess, in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. Does the, does the poor guy get a Martin Baker uh, pin for his lapel? <laughs> is, is it a Martin Baker if, seat? I if, yeah, I don't know if it's a Martin Baker seat. But, somebody uh, figure out, somebody, staff, figure that out. <laughs> yeah, Liz, Liz I, he over. should. He should be entitled to one. After all, he, he yeah. did use the seat. Yeah. I think that qualifies. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, interesting story and a happy. I'm ending. sure that'll stop him from suing them if he gets a. Uh... Well, it says Martin Baker. Quick oh, uh, Google search okay. says says so. All right, very good. There you go. So he'll be expecting. What does he get? A tie and a watch or something? Uh, no, you have to pay for the watch. But you, uh, the only people allowed to buy it are people who have used a, a Baker seat. It's not as nice as Rick's watch, though. <laughs> it's not right. as big. Not as big. No. I don't know how about nice. It's got a it's just a beautiful looking watch. The second hand has on the tail of the second hand is a little ejector seat handle. It looks oh, really? really cool. Yeah. So, and it's explosive. Yes. So if you pull it, the, the watch will go banging off go. your wrist. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> Come so, on, fifty percent, fifty percent. Okay. Yeah. Wait. There we Yay. go. Uh, yes, Liz says she can confirm. It does use Martin Baker seats. Thank you, Liz. Staff. Um, what was I going to say? Is it uh, Breitling? Does do they make that Martin Baker uh, watch? No, uh, no, it's um, another um, company. Blermont or something. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, good. Anyway, Bremont. Bremont. Yeah. Uh, very nice watches. Oh, Liz. Liz was right there too. <laughs> She's quick. Yes, our uh, staff is working overtime today. <laughs> we do appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Remind me of that at the end. Okay, uh, let's see. Are we finished with the uh, the French uh, Jacques? <laughs> okay, um, that's what she said. Air France A three thirty is grounded. Uh, with bullet holes in fuselage. This is from, I believe, the AV, nope, one mile at a time. And yeah, also... This, this is quite common when you fly to an airfield where there are Boeing pilots. <laughs> well, here we go. Uh, this first part of the article is from one mile, at a t- uh, one mile at a Time blog. Damaged. An Airbus A330-200 Air France is grounded at an airport in Pointe-Noire, Congo. 
with bullet holes in its fuselage. Shots have been fired on this A330 upon landing at PNR on April 11th. It was supposed to bring back 100 French citizens. Reports say that the shooter was a chief sergeant on duty at the airport brigade who aimed his weapon at the aircraft. And then I just saw this this morning from Ops Group. That's ops.group. An Air France A330-200 was shot, blah, 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 blah. But it says it turns out to have been a little less dramatic. It seems an altercation between a security guard and his boss led him to trying to fire his gun in the air and hitting the aircraft was unintended. I guess he's not yeah, very good. This is a security guard at an airport and they're having an altercation and he fires his gun into the air. Where, where will the like airplane go? Great idea. <laughs> he probably the went back a little bit too far. <laughs> I don't, Unbelievable. Gee. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Although I don't quite understand it because the report I read, which is quite detailed, said one bullet had gone straight the fuselage and the other one had hit the belly because it had ricocheted. Um, so if you fire your gun into the air, I don't know quite how you get a ricochet up into the belly of the aircraft. But there well, I think he intended to shoot it up into the air. Ah, could be. But he didn't. But by yeah. the sounds of it, he intended to shoot his boss. But uh, Yes, it does sound. Or yeah. at least frighten his boss. <laughs> hey, Jeff, if yeah. they had sent the mad dog down there, it's bulletproof. Oh, That's they true. should. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> and we could carry no, 100 passengers, too. That's there right. There you go. We could have done no, it all it, it's funny because I, actually this is something that we used to check for uh, flying into uh, flying into Afghanistan at different air bases there, and even into the uh, into the airport in uh, in the capital. Um, you you know you'd land and you'd have the mechanic on board actually do a very you know thorough walk around to look for for um, uh, bullet bullet holes, uh, <laughs> bullet holes. and uh, and it's interesting because the the way you well not not really into into Kandahar but uh, flying into Bastion or or Bagram, the airbase itself. There's a special procedure we can we use where we stay. You know, it's um, uh, approach control is run by the Air Force out there, and the way they do things there is they kind of keep you you know high over the uh, over the field itself, and you do this this you know high rated descent spiral kind of maneuver in the valley to keep you away from, from as much as possible. And if you, and, and we, we, we usually fly in there, uh, you know, the cover of night to, to try to, you know, um, uh, just minimize the, uh, the, the possibility of being, being shot at. And so you fly with all your lights off. It's actually when you cross into, into a, uh, Afghan airspace, you turn, um, and you descend through 18,000 feet. You got to make sure that you have all your lights off, even your navigation lights off. Every, every light is, is, is off and you fly the entire approach, without lights and uh you turn the landing lights on if you want to on very very short final i'm talking you know by the time you get to 300 200 feet uh, minimums if you need to see the runway but but by that time your eyes have um, um become accustomed to the i guess lower light conditions and the runway lights are are you know they they demarcate the runway very very well so a lot of times we wouldn't even turn the lights on so um, it's uh, it's an interesting interesting uh, scenario flying in there, you're looking out for bullet holes. That is interesting. Not your normal. Yeah. No, no, very, no, 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 very much a military all. procedure, I assume, uh, Rick. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's mm-hmm. particularly the high and staying high and descending in 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 the valley. There, it's, it's quite interesting. And if you ever do it during the daytime, you go, "Holy smokes! This is how close the mountains are." And uh, I tell you, flying flying in Afghanistan is like flying in the moon. It's like flying in another world altogether. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, breathtakingly beautiful, but, yeah, but but amazingly dangerous as well. 
Um, Glenn from Wellington, New Zealand, uh, asks, uh, how does Dana know that the mad dog is bulletproof? I don't know. <laughs> what, you want to tell it's us just, anything, uh, just Dana? Just trusting it there. <laughs> I just trust the airplane. Okay. <laughs> I thought maybe you have some experience uh, with shooting the uh, jet or something. No, no, no. Just okay. uh, It's just the airplane is just so well built. It's a freaking tank. Yeah, it is. It is a, a tank, actually. All right. You have to be a really good shot to hit something that small compared to an a Airbus or Boeing wide body. You're right. All right. Uh, item D, accident. Uh, this is from aviationherald.com. A Conquest Cargo CVLP near Miami on February 8th. Uh, both engines failed, forced landing and sea. That was uh, February 8th of uh, 2019. We talked about this on a, in an earlier episode, but we didn't know much about what happened except that the engine stopped and they ditched the aircraft. Um, so there is a um, preliminary report, I believe. Uh, no, a final report. Uh, February 9th of this year, the NTSB released their final report concluding the probable cause of the accident was the captain's decision to continue with the flight with a malfunctioning left engine propeller control and the subsequent loss of engine power on both engines for undetermined reasons, uh, which resulted in ditching into the ocean. Contributing to the accident was the first officer's failure to challenge the captain's decision to continue with the flight. And so basically, uh, in a nutshell, uh, on the way over to... Um, Nassau, they uh, had some um, issues with the propeller control on one of the engines, and they reset the system, and it seemed to work okay on the ground in Nassau, and I, I don't remember the exact details here, but they decided that instead of waiting for maintenance to get over there and to you know thoroughly check the thing out, that they would go ahead and risk flying the airplane back to um, Florida. And turns out that was kind of a bad decision because at a certain point in their flight on the way back to Florida, they started having that same problem with the left engine propeller control. And the first officer basically said, why don't we go back to Nassau, uh, which was the right uh, thing to have been uh, performed in this case. And uh, the captain said, yeah, no problem. <laughs> we'll be okay. What could possibly go wrong? Well, the right engine uh, started having problems, backfiring, etc., and ended up having to uh, turn off that engine and feather it. And then basically they didn't really have much power at, at all to continue the flight, and they ditched. Yeah, you have uh, two engines. One uh, goes south. Uh, you want to baby the other one as much as you can and uh, you know, just go back to where you can get uh, – I mean, why why even take off in the first place if you if, if if it's not like it's you know they're coming from the other side of the world you know just Fort Rapalaca is I mean I I, I used to fly uh, in the Caribbean quite a bit um, and uh, a flight from Rapalaca to Nassau just, just an hour you know mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more it's, it's not like you're going to be there for you know you'd be waiting for hours and hours and it's it's the it's an engine so it's I way even play with that but. Uh, but hindsight's twenty twenty, I guess, and uh, it's it's very very sad. Yeah, well, he's not going to make uh, that mistake again. He died. Yeah, yep. didn't mm -hmm. work out so well for the captain. No, it didn't. No. And he had a lot of a lot of experience twenty three thousand hours total, about what I have. Um, 
and wow. 725 hours on the accident aircraft. And uh, so it just goes to show you, no matter how much skill you have, you have to have good judgment. And that's probably more important. You know what it is, actually? And and I, I just read a book called um, Tales from Corrosion Corner not too long ago, actually. And um, it uh, it deals primi- primarily with with the with the cargo outfits in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, and, and and the early 90s uh, based out of uh, MIA and uh, a lot of this types of a lot of these types of aircraft you know they the old Convairs the Connies the the DC fours five sixes uh, even some DC threes and C forty sixes and um, a lot of the, a lot of times uh, these these airplanes were um, I mean they're 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 not they're maintained but not to the not to the standards of uh i guess a more established type of outfitter operation and so a lot of times they'd get uh, indications about uh, you know engine issues and then would they would chalk those up to just instrumentation uh and not actual engine health so uh, and if it was a recurrent uh issue then it, it wasn't really something to be i guess worried about so i can i can kind of see based on that uh on that uh, way of seeing things or that type of operation that uh he may have thought you know that that, that was it, it was an instrumentation issue versus a versus a, an actual engine problem but you know certainly it was they wouldn't have they wouldn't have uh, considered uh, having maintenance you know flown over from the mainland to Nassau to have it checked out if you know if, if it was if it was anything else. so I, I don't know it's just kind of reading that book kind of gives me that 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 little bit of of, of um, that that point of view I guess that uh, I can kind of see where the guy's coming from but but still you know you know we've talked about before too to, to Rick's point a little bit sometimes with um, you know if they've seen similar issues in the past and it hasn't turned into anything serious. Um, then it gives you perhaps uh, false confidence that it would be okay mm. the next time it happens as well. Yeah, they, they didn't mention anything about that happening in this case, but I know there's been other yeah. accidents and incidents we've talked about where you know something's not been right and it turned out okay. So yeah, the flight ahead you know. of us, uh, they made it, so yeah, I'm exactly. sure we'll be okay too. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, not always. Can't be complacent like that. Nope. No, you cannot. All right, that ends our new segment, and that means yay! It's time for us to talk about what we've been doing since we were last recording the show. And again, we'll uh, continue with seniority order and hear from the good doctor. Yeah, well, um, let's see. What have we done since the last show? Last show was on Saturday last week. Is that right? Sunday. Um, just been up to the usual in terms of work stuff. Um, unfortunately, it's getting... A little bit slower and slower for us as well as people don't want to venture out of their houses quite as much. Um, so that's that's not terribly encouraging, but uh, we'll keep doing what we need to do and keep working as best we can and as much as we can and try and keep as many folks uh, that work for us employed and, and busy as well. Um, so hopefully, yeah, just, just kind of the same there. Um, some nice stuff on uh, in terms of trying to distract all of us from, from these things going on with COVID-19. Um, Pilot Pip, you've heard of him, Plane Safety Podcast, hosted a, yeah, I know, uh, (laughs) lesser known figure in the aviation uh, podcast world. (laughs) That's not true. No, everybody knows knows Pip. Pip. Everyone knows Pip. Um, Put together a wonderful um, pub quiz type event last night uh, that Nick and I participated on. And I was really impressed with the amount of effort that um, 
both Pip and actually Nick contributed quite a few questions um, and the effort and uh, work that they put into putting all that together for us. So thank you guys. That was a lot of fun. It's three and a half hours um, of my life that I'll never get back. But, uh, <laughs> it did take a while, didn't it? <laughs> who, who won? Um, well, so a little Adam. bit of, well, Adam's being scored the most points. Um, but in the end, uh, Pip gave the win to Micah, main man Micah. Oh, okay. Uh, was there any prize? Despite the fact that Adam had about 30 more points than, than anybody anyone. else, he said, well, what we're going to do is call it a draw and we'll have one question now to decide who's the winner. And I'm going, really? Well, you know, it's really not fair to be in any kind of a quiz with Adam Spink. Especially not no. one that relies heavily on aviation history type stuff. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. He knew just about everything. Wow. Mm-hmm. So what was, the, uh, what was the grand prize? Anything? A whole bunch of plane safety podcast points, and we have determined that those for? are not very valuable. <laughs> okay, I was just wondering. Oh, they can be redeemed for all sorts of things, but it's really hard to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Steph has about okay. three million. I think she's. I do. I keep giving them away to other people, though. <laughs> oh, okay, uh, fair, fair yeah, enough. Whatever, I run contest. I well, think I have zero. Bra- bragging rights. What else? You What's want? that? Yeah. It's- Bragging rights. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah. to give you a clue of uh, how good Adam is, we had a question about uh, the Hindenburg. And the, the question I said, well, this third party, and this was the hardest part, um, you know, what uh, two symbols did it have uh, on its fuselage or what symbols did it have on its fuselage on its very first flight? Uh, and Adam remembered that it had swastikas, uh, but he had forgotten that it also had the five Olympic rings because it was Berlin's turn to host the Olympics that year. So they oh, painted wow. that on the side. But that was one of the few questions he got wrong. I was going, yeah. wow, I was suppressed, impressed. I was, I was just happy there was one of the music questions that I got right that Adam did not know. Oh, that was, my that was not music. Triumph. That was like the worst eight-track stereo in the world. <laughs> Well, it was supposed to be difficult to recognize. He, he, had, he had sped up and slowed down and played backwards. Backward. And I'm going, I have a hard enough job working out music <laughs> answers at the best of times. What was the song? Oh, oh. there were a whole bunch of them. I've got oh, okay. uh, uh, Come Fly With Me. Yeah, Sinatra. We had uh, just all aviation-related ones. Danger Zone, obviously. Oh, they even had uh, uh, You Can Always Go Around. Yep, You Can go, wow. Always Go Around. And, yeah. and no one knew who had or sang it. Because that was one of the points as well. So I, I, I think I know who did. <laughs> I didn't write it down, so you could say anything, and I, I would have no idea. Um, just but anyway, forgotten. if anyone's interested, it's, it is posted to Pip's YouTube channel, I believe. So you can go back and uh, play along, uh, in, even though it's not live anymore, if you want. Excellent. All right. And, and that's um, plainsafetypodcast.com. PlaneSafetyPodcast.com, I think. Okay. Someone will correct me if I'm incorrect there. Yeah, it was very and, good of uh, the PTUK guys, Matt, to uh, yes. actually do all the button pushing. Yes, a lot of help from He's from a wizard at all that stuff. He is. Mm-hmm. And the only other thing, um, you know, just reminiscing about two years ago today was the day I ran that Boston Marathon in the uh, monsoon condition. So I've got my ice wow. swam from Hopkinton to... Boston t-shirt on today. It's been all nice right. watching all of uh, my friends post uh, pictures from that day or their all their memories pop up on Facebook and social media and whatnot. So I can't believe it's already been two years. I, I know. Then. It's crazy. I was supposed to be leaving for Boston tomorrow because the marathon was supposed to be on Monday, but it's been moved to September. Um, I'm not running that marathon this year, but I was going to go spectate and then go on to London, which was supposed to be next Sunday as well. So oh, see you well. in October, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, 
Let's move on to Miami, Rick. Well, I have been doing a lot of flying, certainly, um, but uh, did a lot of work around the house, you know, just because we're, as, as you all know, we're redoing the courtyard up front and then uh, the backyard and, you know, and then the gutters and just fountains and it's a lot of work here. So I've uh, been doing that and also uh, reading up on uh, chapter 10 of the flight operations manual that I have to kind of know inside and out when I uh, start heading back on the road here, hopefully in about another week or so. So I kind of have to have that uh, be well there, uh, well versed in that. So that's, that's really it. Haven't, haven't, haven't really left the house much. So. All right. You know, speaking of, uh, you know, like um, things that are, you're building and stuff, I, I've built this in my backyard. I'm right in front of the window here. Uh, you can see that in my backyard. I, built oh, a nice I know you, you do, you do fantastic work. Look yeah. at that. I just did that. It just took a couple of days, you know, but oh, just a couple of days. That's yeah. all I was like. <laughs> Where did you get the manatee swimming around inside it? Well, I don't oh, yeah. really want to talk about it because I think that's against the <laughs> you, law. You watched um, Tiger King on Netflix? <laughs> yes, I did. All these people are able to get all these exotic animals. I have, I have no idea. There's some source out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I finally watched, watched my first episode of that and I thought, okay, I can oh, kind of see the appeal of... Uh, of that show. <laughs> I, I haven't yet. I don't know. And I just keep seeing these things. There, there's all these funny memes and, yeah. and I feel like I'm so I, I'm not in the know and I'm, I'm this close to, you know, just it's giving a, it. It's a, watching just know it's a train wreck. Time. Once you start, it is. There's, is you there, can't stop watching it. Really? Yeah. yeah. It, I don't know. It, it, exactly. Like a rubbernecking uh, a wreck on the highway. Oh yeah. <laughs> For sure. Good Lord. Anyway. Um, all right. Um, so look to for, uh, looking forward to hearing when you get out there and uh, start flying again, Rick. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna put out uh, a couple of crew logs here and uh, bringing everybody along. Nice on the uh, on the first couple of trips there, and uh, and it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be a good ah, time. That'll be awesome. All right, uh, Nick. How how is the uh, the health situation going for you? You don't sound like you're coughing as much as you were in the past. Uh, it's uh, fine in the mornings, uh, it gets worse during the day, uh, but still there. So, you know, it'll be five weeks uh, in a couple of days. Um, I'm going to have a chat with the doc tomorrow just to make sure that, you know, things are um, still okay. Uh, but uh, no, I'm I'm keeping myself busy uh, and uh, we've just been locked down for another three weeks. So, so yeah, not much else to happen. Uh, and um yeah, I, like luckily I've got you guys to keep me amused and give me something to do, give me a purpose in life. So, so how's Jilly holding up uh, with you being at home all this time? Uh, well, I've had to take all the knives off the wall now and lock them in a <laughs> lock them in a drawer. Uh, apart from that, yeah. yeah, we're doing all right. She keeps whispering to the dogs. I don't know what she's trying to teach them, but uh, they're starting to look at me askance. So she's, she's going. I'm getting em, a bit sick worried. Sick em. <laughs> so, kill, kill, kill! Rip his throat out. Uh, yeah, but no, 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 we're hanging on in there. The wet, nice weather makes it very frustrating because um, you know, you know, you'd love to go out for a drive and a picnic or go to the beach or something and. Uh, really, that is, you know, would be very irresponsible. So, uh, in our country, um, we I think we just turned the corner, but it's going to be a slow process to uh, get the numbers uh, down to a reasonable uh, d- 
daily infection rate so that they can start finding a way of somehow unlocking this. But how do they do that? I don't know. Are you allowed over there to like take the dogs out for the long walks or not? Yeah, once a day locally, you're allowed to leave your house for exercise or with the dogs, you know, uh, and uh, on your own or with someone from your household. But you've got to maintain social distancing uh, and you can go out uh, to essential shopping, uh, obviously to food is really what they're saying, uh, or to visit a hospital. That's basically it. All right. Very good. Dana. Oh, unless you're an essential worker, of course. But uh, and we admire them enormously. In fact, uh, at eight o'clock tonight, uh, uh, everyone will go outside and uh, applaud and bang pots and pans and make a lot of noise, uh, so that anyone who is working in the national health system or the care system or just one of those essential emergency workers or whatever can hear how much we all appreciate uh, the risk they're putting themselves into and the work they're doing. And speaking of those essential uh, workers uh, in our chat room, Kelly Kirk is a truck driver and he is uh, along with many others out there helping to keep our grocery stores all stocked up so we can continue to eat. We do appreciate that. Absolutely. They, they really are vital to society right now. They are. All right. And uh, let's see. Dana, how have you been, sir? Been doing much? Uh, pretty much doing the same thing everybody else is low-key. However, uh, I'm part of that essential work group, so I had my trip taken away from me last week. Man, I need I to stop said. you. Hang on, hang on. All of us here on the panel are essential workers. We're podcasters. Okay, well. continue. <laughs> At I'm least keep that social Fortunately, work from home uh, is is perfect for us. <laughs> no, even though it's I was listening to another show. I think I mentioned this on the last episode that said that actually now maybe it was just in that state, but podcasters are actually written down as like news people are essential workers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. So I can take my APG badge and and go out into the. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I meant to. Uh, do those certificates for you yeah. guys, your ID oh. cards, and I, I just didn't get around to it. I'm sorry. Yes, I was, I was about to say, where is my certificate and ID card? There you go. Like the one that I carry from Acme. Yeah. Um, It'll be with your next paycheck. Okay, go ahead. It, paycheck? What's that? Yeah. Um. Anyways, uh, yeah, I had, the, uh, had our recovery flying assigned to me. I was supposed to have a four-day starting on Sunday, and that was uh, – handily removed from my schedule so had to do that recovery thing and uh, they gave me a round trip up to uh windsor locks Hartford, connecticut springfield bradley uh airport four names for one airport um and uh, the weather there was a significant storm system that moved through the southeast the night before and uh, that was marching itself up to the uh, east coast of the United States of America. And, uh, of course, landed itself smack dab in the uh, sector I was going to up there in the northeast, which is where uh, BDL, Bradley International Airport, is. And we know that airport as from the uh, the B-17 crash. It's the same airport. Um, so I got to the airport in, in Atlanta and was – I had already had my eye on the weather before I even left home and arrived to find out that the flight had been delayed about 40 minutes. Um, and I promptly called my dispatcher and said, hey, you know what's going on? And uh, after I had already known what's going on, he said, yeah, we've delayed it an hour, you know, well, 45 minutes, whatever it was. I looked at the weather. I said, well, uh, I agree with that. And if you take a look at the forecast, 
uh, the, the winds are still in exceedance of our limitation. Uh, he said, no, they're not. I said, um, well, the way I'm calculating it out, it is. He says, no, your, st- your steady state wind is only 26 knots. I said, yeah, I agree with that. That's a headwind. What about the crosswind component? And he said, uh, no, I'm not showing that. I said, yes, well, the winds are, uh, to be exact, the, the runway is 2-4 up there. The winds were forecasted to be one nine one eight zero at uh, 29 gusting 43. So I put that number in there with, the, you know, of course, uh, it being roughly 50 degrees off the runway. Uh, and it came out with 33 knot direct, you know, crosswind, which is an exceedance for our 30 knots. So we had a nice little conversation. He said, yeah, and I do see that now. I said, and, you know, I'd just like to delay the flight another half hour. He says, no, let's just do the full hour. So we ended up delaying the flight almost. It actually almost was uh, two and a half hours late. Um, but that was my call. And uh, the National Weather Service, of course, uh, doing their great job of predicting the weather when we were supposed to arrive there. The winds were supposed to be gusting. I remember it was up to 30 knots. I think it was 180, 190, uh, 18 gusts and 30, if I remember the numbers correctly. And that, of course, was in our limits. Of course, once we get there at that time pre- prescribed that the weather would be there, you know, doing that type of wind, uh, it turned out that the winds were doing were just 11 knots out of the south. So, it all that's worked a, out. That's a nice surprise. Yeah, that was a very nice surprise. Very happy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of the wind in my airplane. I'm very f- familiar with it. But, of course, if I'm in exceedance, I'm obviously not going to, you know, take the, the airplane to, to landing. And uh, if we had just done the half-hour delay that I was just asking them for, um, then we would have been fine, too, because the winds were dropping off significantly. I, I kind of felt that that's what was going to happen. But what I didn't want to do in our current economic environment is go up and, and burn unnecessary fuel um so you know we we ultimately decided to go with the hour hour pushback on it so uh in addition to what we actually it was uh an hour it actually was an hour and 40 minutes and we put another hour so it's two hours and 40 minute delay um that's the only flying i've seen i'm scheduled to go out this coming sunday however that has since been removed from my schedule and i'm uh, doing a lot of home projects the as uh uh, Jeff has in his screen behind him that home, beautiful home project he's completed. I <laughs> uh, finally completed my uh, master bathroom, uh, just waiting on the glass installation. And I've been doing various things around the house, including, uh, you know, why not social distance on the boat too? So we've been doing that on the weekends, getting away from everybody and going floating and enjoying some distance and fresh air. Very good. Sounds nice. Uh, let's see, since the last show, I ended up, uh, doing some recovery flying as well. My original trip, as you know, um, all of my trips basically this month have, uh, dropped and, uh, that means that we're on the hook for some recovery flying if it becomes available. And I think it was within five minutes of my window that they could assign me a trip. <laughs> they assigned a, a two day trip, uh, which wasn't bad at all. I just went up to, where did I go? Um, Philadelphia. Yeah. And, um, Kind of late at night, um, got in just before midnight and then stayed right near the airport there at the Embassy Suites Hotel, which is uh, not actually on the airport itself, but it's uh, within a five to ten minute drive. Got in there and uh, we, we asked the people, uh, the fine folks at the Embassy Suites, uh, what the what the food situation was like there. And they said, well, our restaurant's closed and uh, we don't have any food. <laughs> So we went, okay. And we didn't, I think our pickup the next day was like one thirty. So 
I got to uh, practice some some fasting, uh, but I was able to uh, eat something when I got back to the uh, airport. I think there was one place open at the airport. Anyway, just an interesting world that we're living in now. I just assumed that there would be some provision for getting something to eat. But uh, when you're kind of in an isolated area and the facility doesn't have their own restaurant open, it, it uh, slim pickings. pickings. All right. Um, yeah, I just flew back yesterday and uh, very quiet up there. That's all I can say. Not a lot of traffic. It's weird, isn't it? Yep. It's but very weird. After a while, you start going, I wonder if we should have been switched to a new frequency. You know, it's like one of those things where you don't hear anything on the radio for a while. Are you still there? Yep, we're still here. Okay. Anyway. Um, that's it for me. So um, I was also supposed to be doing a two-day trip today and tomorrow. I thought maybe they'd uh, assign like a turnaround for tomorrow, but I made it through my my six-hour window without being assigned anything. So I'm off the hook until Wednesday of next week. So I did pick up a, um, a replace some replacement flying for next week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So we'll see if that goes. Who knows? Okay. Um, I guess that's it. Any Anything else? Should we bring Liz on and ask her what she's been doing? No, yeah. she's, she's shaking her yeah. head. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. She's but I tell you on. what, I mean, it's it's uh, it's, it's always good to have. I mean, I, I always have you know beef jerky and uh, and uh, a couple of protein bars and you know, protein powder, perhaps. And because you, you're you never a smart know. man. <laughs> uh, well, and now might be the time to start meal prepping a little bit for for trips because you never know what's going to be open or closed, and yeah. things seem to change frequently. And oh, you know, yeah. I figure, well, I, I'm only going to be there like overnight and. And what what could possibly go wrong? But I have to admit, I did have a, a bag of uh, roasted uh, in in the shell uh, peanuts, like you get at the mm. ballpark. So that that uh, kind of mm. kept me Nutritious. going. Well, peanuts aren't that bad for you, are they? Were they they were just peanuts, not like yeah. super salted or anything? Okay. Oh, they're super salted. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were uh, in the shell. You know, like you get at the ballpark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Salt is good. I like salt. Oh, okay. Or in the zoo. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, just call me uh, the elephant. And based on that yeah. picture that uh, Nick put up there before we started recording, uh, I'm getting close to uh, those proportions. <laughs> okay. Did I? Liz asked me if I left the shells on the floor. No, I was very careful to make sure that the shells went into the trash can. Now, I'm not saying that 100% of the shells made it into the trash can, but most of them did. It wasn't like, uh, what, Dirty Nellie's? Is that the name of the bar that... Uh, has a has all the peanut shells on the floor? Used to be a bunch of restaurants where you could just like yeah. shell peanuts and throw the shells yeah. on the floor. And Texas Roadhouse. Now everyone's got allergies That's to peanuts, the one, yeah. so they don't do that as much anymore. But yeah. yeah, you're right. I think you're right. Texas Roadhouse. That was definitely one. All right, Lone Star Steakhouse. Oh, uh, you know another one, but you, they don't really encourage you putting the shells on the floor. Is um, Five Guys? They all have those. Mm-hmm. Going to Five Guys, they always have that bucket of peanuts, except for at the airport. Yeah, that, if you started throwing them on the floor, they might frown. A little yeah, bit. I think I think they would frown, frown upon it. Yeah, yeah, or Morton Steakhouse, I think they do that too. It's <laughs> <laughs> a classy joint. Wow, <laughs> didn't haven't been to one in a while, but uh, okay, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> um, they, didn't, they didn't like it, but that mean you can't do it. Oops. Well, you know what? That's good timing. I pushed that button accidentally. It's time for us to talk about the ca- coffee fund. Okay. <laughs> Let me do that over, though. 
because I don't like talking over the guy saying, can I, what does he say? You want a cup of coffee? What does he say? Tell it again, How about, How about some more coffee? How about some more coffee? Thank you. I should know that no, by thanks. now. Appreciate it. Okay, that was actually a little excerpt from um, Airplane. Airplane. That was one of the uh, tr- uh, trivia questions last night. The really? uh, name of uh, Ted Stryker's girlfriend, first and last name. No idea. No one knows this? I feel like I was one of the only people that knew this. Elaine Dickinson. Huh. Ah. How would you know that? Only seen the movie about four billion times. Ah, okay. Gotcha. You have the whole thing memorized. (laughs) Pretty close. Okay. All right. Now we're really going to do the coffee fun thing. Here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community coffee and tea and the java and me a cup a cup a cup a cup a cup all right coffee fund it's your way to support the show financially however if you're a patriot patron via patreon uh we're not charging you at this time because of the um coronavirus thing going on anyway that didn't stop people from joining patreon anyway uh, let's see. We have uh, four new producers. Sasha Beer, Andrew Vandersog, Der- Van Jeff Hilb, and Alan White. Thank you for becoming new producers of the show. Uh, yeah, of the show. And we have a new executive producer. I guess, uh, let me see. I got uh, something here to play. There we go. Carl Hoodie, um, in parentheses, lobster. Why did my music stop? Darn it. Hmm. It's one of those settings I have in my uh, soundboard that I forgot to correct. Anyway, uh, Carl Hude, H-O-U-D-E, is a new executive producer of the show. So thank you very much, all of you new patrons out there. And uh, just as soon as we start recovering from this uh, COVID-19 thing, we'll start charging again. But in the meantime, um, relax and enjoy. And we also have some folks that use the Coffee Fun Classic method since the last episode and many of these are actually patrons and they are Alan Loveday, George Leslie, Patrick Hosford, Mazuts Karim, Tony Stubbings and Fitzjames Muscadin. And so thank you all of you for your generous contributions to the show. We do really appreciate that. And if uh, you're listening out there, you want to join this great group of folks, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. Captain, incoming message. We will start with item one in our feedback. Matt from Chapel Hill sent us a link to this article from the independent.ie. A passenger claims Aer Lingus staff pulled her from toilet with her pants still down as the flight was about to take off. Uh, she, she claims she's filed a lawsuit claiming she was injured after flight attendants pulled her out of the airplane toilet as her flight was about to take off. American national Mary Oshana alleges she was dragged back to her seat while her pants were still below her knees, exposing her buttocks 
and Jeanatalia to other passengers. <laughs> she also, oh, that's not French, is it? She had French genitalia? Yes, she did. <laughs> well, okay. I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, she also alleges her hip was injured during the incident and that she was the subject of laughter from other passengers. Let's see if we can get that. <laughs> uh, the bizarre case was filed with a U.S. court last week. Ms. Oshana from Skokie, Illinois, is seeking a jury trial for damages claiming airline staff acted unreasonably, carelessly, and negligently. Aer Lingus has declined to comment on her claims. Uh, so, according to her filing, they were taxiing from the departure gate at O'Hare International in Chicago, remained stopped on the tarmac for around 30 minutes before it taxied on towards the runway for takeoff. While it was stopped on the tarmac, she left her seat to go to the toilet. According to the complaint, about 20 seconds after entering the toilet, she heard one or more persons banging on the door telling her she needed to return to her seat. By this stage, she was seated in the toilet with her pants down. The filing said she told those on the other side of the door she would go back to her seat in just a minute. But it is alleged that approximately 20 seconds later, two Aer Lingus flight attendants broke through the lavatory door, grabbed the plaintiff under her arms, dragged her to her seat while her pants were below her knees, and threw her with great force into the armrest and seat. The complaint alleged that her buttocks and genitalia were exposed to other passengers on the flight. In the process of being thrown with great force into the armrest and seat, the plaintiff suffered pain and bruising in her hip, thighs, and buttocks. So, oh, and then to make things even worse, it went on to claim she saw and heard male passengers seated behind her laughing and pointing at her. So, I think that maybe we're only hearing her side of this. Uh, what do you guys think? Uh, two uh... thoughts. You're, yep. you're probably right. And the other thought is, why didn't why, I'll just say that in English. Why didn't the crew lock off the toilets uh, when the belts went on and they started taxiing? Oh, do they in do fact, that uh, at your airline? Oh, yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. no, that well, that is not a policy at our airline. Well, I don't know if it's, it's a written policy, but generally speaking, that's what they do to prevent oh. exactly this kind of uh, occurrence. Never heard of that. Exactly, both both on the taxi out and uh, going through ten thousand on the way down. I've, uh, I've I've seen that on many airlines, and we used to do it as well when we used to fly passengers. So never yeah. seen that at all on Acme. Hmm. I've never seen that. Well, you're probably not that. airborne long enough for it to anyone to need to use the loo, are you? <laughs> Even on the flights that I've non-revved on, <laughs> long flights, I've never seen that. Yeah, interesting. interesting. Okay. Anyway, it would have stopped this problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I have, having been uh, a captain, uh, when just as you're given takeoff clearance and you're taxiing around on the end of the runway, you get a ding and they say, someone's just gone in the toilet. And you look back at the queue of 30 airplanes and think, oh, hell, yeah. what am I supposed to do now? Well, it's going to be an interesting takeoff for her now, isn't it? Yeah, I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> I'm just going you made to your choice. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to assume what they just told me on the interphone is that everybody is seated and ready to go for takeoff. <laughs> yeah. And then I say, "Oh, I was a misunderstanding. I'm sorry. I misunderstood what you said." Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, I don't know. This, I, this... I would bet that they were a lot closer to takeoff than she alleges in her filing. Well, I, I think this is a case that uh, probably what the lawyer wrote and released is a press release. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is, is the seatbelt sign is on. Uh, I don't think, and, and she is in complete and total disregard of, of the crew member's instructions. 
I don't know that she has a leg to stand, no pun intended, a leg to stand on here. <laughs> uh, you don't know. I mean, you, you, we, you don't know how the court's going to react, but I think, I mean, in, in, quite honestly, she's in, in complete and total disregard of, of crew, crew member orders. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I don't think she has much of a case, actually. But if it's like uh, most of the airlines out there, they'll probably try to settle with her and pay her more money than she deserves. Yeah, but but less than it would cost to fight in court. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, the sad thing. Yeah. Such a pisser that they do that, no pun intended. <laughs> well, this is just a lesson for all of us. Don't get caught with your pants down. No kidding. All right. Uh, or a leg up. Or <laughs> Item two, Chris. Writes in, drop in aircraft observations could have impact on weather forecasts, according to the European Center for Medium-Range Weather Forecasts, or otherwise known as the ECMWF. One aspect of the, uh, this is the article that he uh, points us to, one aspect of the COVID-19 pandemic has been a reduction in aircraft flights and thus of the aircraft-based observations available to weather prediction centers. The observations are used together with many others to help estimate the state of the Earth system at the start of the forecasts. Um, At the ECMWF, aircraft reports are second only to satellite data in their impact on forecasts. However, recently added satellite wind observations will help to mitigate the drop in the number of aircraft base observations. Anyway, so the article goes on, gives them graphs and some numbers and figures and that kind of thing. But uh, that's one of the... I guess the unintended side effects of the fact that we're not flying as much as we used to uh, could have on other aspects of our life, like weather forecasting. Anyway, um, item three from a couple of our APG community members, Texas Charlie and Mike Dell. Um, He says, uh, Captain Nick might have an interest in doing a story on Don Curlin and his company Air USA. Uh, The story has um, multiple angles. Uh, This guy owns his own and large private subsonic and supersonic Air Force. He's hiring fighter jocks. So here's another potential employer for a laid-off pilot with fighter skills. And uh, this article about Air USA is from thedrive.com. And... Let's see here. Oh, wow. This didn't work out very well at all, the way this is formatting on on Evernote. Um, Let's see. Tyler Rogaway. I'm not sure if that's the way he pronounces his last name, from thedrive.com, starts off by saying that for the last 30 years, Don Curlin has been flying for the airlines, working on real estate deals, setting up the world's biggest skydiving meets, and building a private air force, the likes of which even he has a hard time believing is possible. Just last month, the war zone was among the first to report that his company would be purchasing multiple squadrons worth of surplus Royal Australian Air Force FA-18 Hornets to be used in the contractor adversary air support role here in the United States. In that role, they would primarily fly against U.S. military fighter pilots replicating aerial threats from potential enemy nations. So basically, they are bad guys for hire, but strictly for training and development work. Now, not only do we have the details on the purchase, which is even more impressive than it initially seemed, but we talked at length with the entrepreneur owner of Air USA, located in Quincy, Illinois, about his company's past and what is turning into a remarkable, if not downright historic, future. 
all kinds of airplanes in his private Air Force fleet. I'm, I'm very impressed. He's buying 46 FA-18 Hornets from the Royal Australian Air Force. That's a, that's a good number, isn't it? It's a huge number. Now, I have a question for Nick here because, uh, well, obviously you flew you flew um, fighters uh, for many years. Um, how would this gentleman um, handle currency requirements for the pilots that he that he employs? Or how do you how do you how do you stay current on, on a fighter? I, I guess it will be a, probably a mirror image of the uh, United States Air Force's requirements. Uh, the FAA will give him a special license to run the uh, these aircraft. And he'll have to write up a uh, an operations manual which dictates uh, how many hours these guys get and how often they fly. But what they'll be, I don't know. But they certainly, uh, uh, in the re- most recent times, uh, military pilots have not had any huge requirement for currency. You know, you can get away with eight or ten hours a month. It's not ideal, but that might be the minimum. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. But, I mean, what is interesting for me is that the aircraft that I used to have my name on when I flew the Australian F-18s might well be in his fleet. Oh, I thought maybe that the uh, Canadian Air Force. That was going to be my question. Didn't the Canadian Air Force get some of those? Yeah, I think they they got a bunch. I I don't know how many they got, uh, 18, 20 of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then this guy has taken a big number. Mind you, I suspect he'll probably use some uh, as uh, breaking up the spares, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, what, that's what I was going to ask. Because I mean, for for these older aircraft, the maintenance costs and the ability to maintain these aircraft is going to be, I would think, would be so high that it wouldn't even make it worth it. I think he's probably going to hire uh, ex-military F eighteen engineers to uh, look after them for him. Uh, he'll probably have a cadre of experienced guys, and then he'll just take on lots of other guys to do it. I don't think they're particularly difficult aircraft to maintain. I mean, like most modern fighters, uh, they're they're just they're modulized. So you know, you if you have a box that breaks, you just pull it out and push in a new one, and then send it off to second line or third line. Uh, it depends how much uh, people are going to charge him to. Um, repair all this stuff or whether he can do it himself uh he won't have to do that much on the weapon system i wouldn't have thought um he won't have to keep it that uh serviceable i suspect uh they'll use some other way to uh represent whatever enemy force they're going to uh, do they don't need bell of fire missiles and that kind of stuff i mean there there is there is a uh, outfit out of Cartersville, Georgia, um, known as Phoenix Avia- Phoenix Air Aviation. They've been doing this for a long time with Learjets, uh, you know, Lear 30, 35s. Um, yeah, so there'll it, be it, electronic countermeasure um, simulations, so uh, I would have thought, and also just plain target uh, runs. But this will mm-hmm. be more like an aggressor squadron right. um, mm. sort of thing. But it's, it's obviously cheaper for the... Uh, Air Force to rent these guys to be their aggressive squadron than it is to build their own and have mm-hmm. pilots there all trained up uh, that can't actually take an operational role because they're currently current on something, you know, that's uh, not in the uh, modern inventory of aircraft. So just right. thought this was interesting with regards to you're talking about um, how many they purchased and using some for parts, but so they, so 36 are flyable today, the other 10 are not, but they're planning on putting every single airframe back into service because hmm. uh, in, with the deal, they also included all of the RAAF's spare parts inventory and test equipment. 
Oh, good. Valued Sounds at a billion dollars alone mm-hmm. just for that stuff. Yeah. Well, they wow. must have a pretty uh, impressive contract with uh, the United States military in order to be able to afford that kind of money. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Interesting yeah. niche market. And I tell you, I um, when I started out at uh, Acme Giant, one of the guys that came over, he was a pilot for a privately run, privately owned uh, air-to-air refueling company called Omega. On, uh, on the, oh, yeah. I've seen their yeah. aircraft, yeah. Yeah, yeah. On uh, uh, he, he flew the 707 there. And uh, they're actually, I, I up until that point, I had no idea this was even a thing. So um, I think strange. I saw it. Didn't we see one of those at uh, Farnborough um, yep. a couple That's of years exactly ago? Right, uh, DC, yeah. uh, KC-10, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Had Omega. Mm-hmm written on the mm. side and i thought what, oh, what the heck right. is that <laughs> yeah. yeah um now in uh, in Evernote, i saw the picture of uh, some of the australian f-18s lined up and the one in the foreground with it said away refueling probe out was 114 mm-hmm. and uh, i spent many an hour in the in the seats of that because that was our squadron's two sticker oh. so uh yeah i used to carry out check rides in the back and uh, uh yeah and uh, also fly it single seat so yeah very nice i was trying to find uh mike dell's um comment he said uh you know if they had some spare f-111s there he wouldn't mind going back up on one of those babies <laughs> he, <laughs> he used to be a weapon systems os- operator on the uh, f-111 in the air I force don't know. i think uh that his mind would be willing i'm not quite sure if his body would be <laughs> up to it <laughs> yeah when i was when we were reading that earlier story about the uh retirement party <laughs> for the guy that got that injected himself from the uh Airplane, I'm thinking, yeah, four point something G's right off the bat. I'm not sure I'd be able to handle that very well anymore. Nah. nah. Okay. Well, anyway, very interesting story. Um, as regards doing it as a plain tale, I think we've got about as much out of the story as we can. So yeah. it, it's not going to pitch up as a tale, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, well. Um, how about some audio feedback? Um, Dave Gooch sent us some regarding um, a subject that we talked about, or somebody had a question about this on an earlier episode, mm. uh, Special Authorization Cat 2, and uh, he has some expert opinion about this. Hey, guys. It's uh, Captain Dave here. I'm Dave Gooch, captain for uh, Acme Love Airlines out of Chicago, uh, giving you a little uh, feedback on your Special Authorization Cat 2 feedback that you guys got. Um, Rick and Dana were both kind of right on some of the, some of the parts on there, but the, uh, the special authorization doesn't have anything to do with the RVR. It's about the reduced, uh, lighting. So if you lose your touchdown zone or your centerline lights, they become inoperative on a cat two approach. Um, our airline is authorized to go down to the regular cat two minimums, assuming that you have, uh, like Dana was talking about the, the correct RVR, your touchdown zone, RVR and rollout RVR available. We can go down to to the cat two minimums, assuming that we use our HUD, um, for airlines that use the auto land, you can use the auto land. Um, I tried the auto land in one of our planes and it doesn't work very well and it's because it's not installed. But anyway, hopefully that gets you uh, back up to 50%. Um, if Nick would uh, like, I could read OPSEC, uh, C0604 him and a uh, later feedback. Keep up the great show. Wash your hands. That'd be great, Dave. I'm sure yeah. that Nick would enjoy that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm probably sleeping right now. It would be perfect. <laughs> yeah, and it's actually it's it's, it's interesting you said that because I uh, I actually pulled up C zero six zero five for us, and uh, we are indeed uh, authorized to uh, fly Cat two 
uh, essays. And just as the feedback said, uh, it, it deals directly with with the uh, with the lights. And it, obviously, our our jets don't have HUDs, but uh, we do have Autoland, so we can fly um, uh, Cat Two essays to uh, to an Autoland to uh, get around that uh, mm-hmm. caveat there. Interestingly, the only uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Dana, but uh, believe at Acme, the only fleet that has uh, can do this special authorization um, approaches are the 737s because they have the HUD. But I think that has changed now. Oh, has it? Okay. 100%, and I may be wrong, so I don't know about the 50% accuracy, but I believe, doesn't the A220 have a HUD in it? Oh, that's true. Yeah. I uh, yeah, I would imagine they probably are also available. Or, But again, as, as uh, stated by... Dave and just now by Rick, um, it appears that if you have Autoland, which all of our fleet has, uh, you would be able to uh, qualify for special authorization. Of course, that would mean that we'd have to be trained in it as well. And we uh, right, right now it, we it, don't. It says here. It says here. Uh, uh, Appendix B says an SA Cat two approach requires use of an Autoland system or a heads up display. Either system must be flown to touchdown. And then uh, there's minimum RVR. Minimum RVR uh, is uh, 1200, 1200 RVR. So, uh, hmm. so yeah, either a HUD or an Autoland uh, to uh, must be flying to touchdown. What you can't do a go around. Oh no, no, hmm. nothing. I thought you could always go around. You can always go around. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, you can always go around. <laughs> Thank you. It's always good to be be able to play that. Bum ba dum bum. socks sliding on the ground. Go around. All right. I mean, I can't wait to use our HUD on our airplane, Jeff. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, not. Neither. Sounds about as good as the Autoland on Dave's airplane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that didn't work out very well. That, that was good. Good one, Dave. Hey, thanks for uh, trying to keep us above the 50%, Mark. We do appreciate that. All right. Um, now, this is a cute one uh, sent oh, in very funny. from yeah. uh, Donna. Uh, she says, my husband used to work for uh, Northwest Airlines, and my niece is a spirit flight attendant, and we all love the podcast. Thank you. Glad you do. Uh, she said, we thought you might enjoy this. Okay, so bear with me. I'm going to go ahead and share the screen and see if we can all listen in together. Um, very, very funny little YouTube video here. Would you like a welcome beverage? Uh, yeah. Thanks. Hi, have you sat here before? Every day. Great. So you're familiar with the exit? Yeah. I just need to run through some safety points with you quite quickly. In the event that you do need to use the exit, I need you to look outside first for any dangers. Would you care for a hot towel? What? Would you care for a hot towel? Um, I guess so. Enjoy. Thanks. Such as smoke, fire, water, or debris. As long as it's clear outside, you're free and good to open it. Sir? Hi. Huh? What? I need you to stow your laptop. Why? For safety. Thank you. Just move the latch to the down position and slide the exit back along its track. Do you understand what I'm asking you to do? It, it's a door. It works like a door. Great. So I do just need everything stowed away while we're here in the event that we do need to use the door quickly. 
from my desk. Everything's stowed away. All right. If you want to uh, <laughs> see the rest of it, we'll have the link in the show notes. Very, very cute. Um, that girl video. has just got the, the stare perfectly. <laughs> I, I mean, the I've told you what to do, and now I'm just waiting for you to do it. <laughs> just, just staring. Yeah. With a smile. <laughs> yep, that's the stare. I love the take the earbuds out kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that too. Anyway. Uh, so good. And it, it actually gets better. Uh, so you need to watch the whole thing. So again, the link is in the show notes. Yeah, very funny. And uh, thank you very much, Donna, for uh, for giving us a, a, a heads up on that um, video, When Flight Attendants Work From Home. <laughs> and uh, I think the, the husband in this case was very, he's a good actor as well. Kind of that look of disbelief. What? What are you doing? This is my house. This is my computer. Yeah. At anyway. my desk. Yeah, my desk. Okay. Uh, continuing on, uh, Texas Charlie <laughs> sent us, uh, this is pretty funny too. And uh, let me see, I'm going to try to sh- share the screen on this one. There's no, it's not a video. It's just a, it's a website that uh, you can go to, to um, buy um, inflatable airplanes. And don't get the wrong idea. Airplanes, inflatable airplanes. Buy three, get one free. So, uh, again, Texas Charlie says, looks like Boeing is trying to make a comeback with a 737-100 ultra-budget model at $19.95 per copy, or buy three and get one free. I think I'll start my own airline. Just need enough ramp workers to throw and catch, and one-quarter size passengers. One of the funniest things to me looking at this article is this picture here, the kid in the uh, swimming pool. This is a very, very large boy, apparently. Yeah, yeah like half the size of an airplane. <laughs> and he's half the size of the swimming pool. That too. It's a very, well, yeah, scale is all wrong there. Yeah. Look at the table and chair set behind him. I know. Very crazy. Anyway. I'm not sure what is the correct size there. Anyway. Yeah, I think there might be a little bit of, I don't know, I'm not an expert at this. Uh, I know you are, Nick, um, photoshopping perhaps? I'm not sure, actually. It's a bit hard to tell from the size <laughs> of the video. but uh... <laughs> Not the video. I'm talking about the kid on the, in the inflatable uh, 737 in the pool. Oh, no, I think that's real. That's what all 737s look like. <laughs> look at how huge he is and how tiny the pool is. Anyway. Yeah, good point. Actually, so some people just can't afford big pools, you know. They well, don't all live in California. I don't have a pool, so apparently I can't. <laughs> you do now. What's that behind you? I mean, you? yeah, except for the one that I made just the last couple just, of days. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. a really nice with big the, one. With the waterfall and stuff. Um, I like the little thumbnail video of the, the airplane flying or being thrown and, like, all the people it takes to catch it on the other end. Yeah. It like, actually what? looks kind of fun. I mean, I know. they're not that expensive. I'm thinking, hmm. Hey, that'd be a perfect uh, thing to throw in the lake there, uh, oh, yeah. Steph. I'm definitely uh, going to order three. Awesome. The 120-inch models? Uh, was that how big it was? <laughs> yes. Um, oh, my gosh. I can't even read that quote. That's terrible. 120 inches of happiness is five times that of the 40, inch, the 40 inches. 
It's time you leave the old, boring toys of your kids aside and pick our inflatable plane for three-year-olds and above. Our inflatable plane can bring more joy and happiness to your children. Oh, no, that wasn't it. But the one you just read is the uh, one mm-hmm. I thought was pretty funny. It's uh, 120 inches of joy, is that what it says? Uh, it says 120 inches a of happiness. happiness is five times that of 40 inches. <laughs> okay. They're not wrong. Show title. <laughs> just kidding. Too long of a title. Okay. Um, so thank you, Texas Charlie, for sharing that with us. Good luck with your new airline. Um Someone named Liz sent this in to us. Uh, she says, "What w- would be interested in on the cruise thoughts on this article. And the article that she sent in is um, from CNN.com. Uh, Paul Sillers from CNN published this article on the 10th of April. What happens when pilots don't get their flying hours? And it starts off by saying the coronavirus uh, pandemic has grounded most of the world's airplanes for the immediate future. But when av- uh, av- aviation eventually reboots, pilots will need to up to speed, need to be up to speed. That doesn't just mean polishing their Ray-Bans and dusting off their navy blue blazers. It means brushing up on flight deck skills and ensuring they keep within the boundaries of aviation's stringent safety regulations. And that is presenting a looming challenge as pilots remain housebound. Pilots require frequent training and recency to be able to fly, says Brian Strutton of the British Airline Pilots Association, or BALPA. Is that the way you'd pronounce that, Nick? BALPA? Yeah, that's right. BALPA. BALPA. Okay. Which represents the interests of all all UK pilots. Is that true? No, there are so. a couple of much smaller unions. So. I thought so. Yeah. And then some probably that aren't uh, represented by unions at all. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, yes, quite a large number. Okay. Recently, or recency means complying with regulations that stipulate a pilot must have successfully carried out three takeoffs and landings, one of which using the cockpit's auto land facility within the previous 90 days. To qualify for flying both at daytime and nighttime, commercial pilots also need to perform three night ta- uh, nighttime takeoffs and landings within the 90 days, which are harder because the pilot has less visual cues. And I would say less, or not less, fewer Visual cues. Thank you very much. This covers the three daytime takeoffs and landings as well. And then uh, I put a note in here. I'm not sure uh, if this really applies at least to the Part 121 in the U.S. as far as the night takeoffs and landings, because I don't think that we even log those. Do we, Dana? We, we do not yeah. separately. That's right. that's an FBR. Okay. Yeah, we don't either. So I think that maybe that applies for maybe other countries and and maybe not folks that are flying Part 121, maybe the Part 135 or GA Part 91. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I know that you, uh, GA pilots, have to uh, do that. But um, I guess they just assume that if you're working for a Part 121 carrier that – you know the landings that you do log. You're getting a variety. Probably perhaps. going to be, some yeah. of them are probably going to be at night, but uh, yeah, it's much much more. Diff- There's a lot more GA pilots who only fly during daytime hours, so that night recency and night currency is very important. Right. Uh, there are other annual checks as well, according to this article. These include the license proficiency check, which a pilot would have to do every year to keep the pilot license valid. Also, the airline that the pilot flies for will have to perform an operational profi- proficiency check every six months. And again, um, that's not really true with, with ACME. We go to recurrent training every nine months, and that is something that's worked out between 
the airline and the FAA here in the U.S. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of generalities here that are, are are kind of put out as a statement of fact, which are really not applicable to everybody. Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, we do our training every uh, six months. So we'll have a, uh, a proficiency training PT every six months and then a proficiency check uh, every year. So it really varies by, you know, airline to airline. So it's not really, you know, black or white here. Yeah. But then again, this is the same people that uh, every airplane north of a Lear 35 is a jumbo jet. So that's true. That's true. Right. Mm-hmm. Cessna, 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 jumbo. <laughs> what was that uh, I was saying? Ultralight. The, the little <laughs> meme that uh, the aviation uh, journalist has to yes. uh, pick. Journalist like, guide to aviation, to aircraft identification. No, no, but the one, mm-hmm. uh, there was like a like a CAPTCHA thing, you know, when you have to. Oh, yeah, with all the, uh, it said pick the uh, 747s. Yeah, each each uh, picture that has a 747 in it. And they... The journalist is going, ah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, for, for most of the people that listen to this show, that would not be difficult at all. But um, anyway. So, yeah, for us at Acme, uh, it's every nine months and every two years, uh, a, a line check. Uh, I guess you could call that a online profi- or a line proficiency check, right, Dana? Yeah. For captains. So mm-hmm. a little bit different. But um, yeah. I guess the point of the article is, even though maybe if all the facts aren't quite right, uh, are that or is that, um, yeah, it is true that because we're not flying, especially the international Pilots, uh, they're going to have to go and get some time in the simulator to keep their landing currency current uh, every, you know, three tech takeoffs and landings every 90 days. And actually, <laughs> the truth be told, at Acme Airlines, the international operation, even when everything was going like normal, uh, there are times when a lot of our pilots have to make a trip to the simulator to, to keep their landing currency because they they just – you know, don't fly enough. Um, and there are so many pilots on, you know, on each flight that you sometimes go, you know, more than 90 days before you get a takeoff and a landing. They used to, they used to be an issue with me, uh, back when I used to fly a 747. Um, and that's something that actually, uh, that scheduling keeps track of because, uh, because of that very issue there. Cause if, if you expire and you don't get your landings and that means that they have to take you off the line send you down to the schoolhouse and you're basically out for the count for about a week. And then you might have days off after that. And so you're, you're, you're just basically not able to, you're, you're just not, you're not productive. So uh, I'm sure that, I'm sure that what airlines are doing now, they're, they're, they're doing what they've always done. They keep track of the, the, the recency recurrency of their pilots. And if they get to the point where they might expire, they just, you know, get a trip down to the schoolhouse, do their three landings, which shouldn't take more than a couple of minutes. In fact, um, one of our uh, uh, simulator instructors that uh, that I did my, I did my last uh, proficiency check with on the seven four before going to the seven six, he was about to expire, and so we finished our simulator session. And so the guy that was on the left seat got up. I stayed on the right seat, um, and then uh, the, the instructor sat down and did his three landings. And he had this thing where he 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 wanted he, so he drew a a three mile ring around the Kennedy Airport. And so the, the 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 challenge was to stay within three miles of the airport and no higher than three hundred feet. <laughs> oh, nice! Very realistic. <laughs> on, on the on this, hey, so it didn't three take very much time at all, right? No, Just, no, no, not at all. And that's the thing. It, he's like, well, this should not take more than ten minutes. If, ta- if it takes more than ten minutes, I start asking questions. And then he asked me why. <laughs> and then he asked me if I wanted to try it. it. It's it's quite a lot of fun, you know. It's, it's just kind of yanking and banking a seven four and a level D. So you just leave the gear stuff. down the whole time. 
Yeah, leave the gear down and stay at flap 20 the whole time. And so yeah. the, 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 what you do, you just do a touch and go. So you basically come down, you, you touch down. And then the, the guy that's sitting on the, on the, on the, on the right, on the first officer's seat, it's kind of important because as the pilot flying is doing the touch and go, you have to reset his trim or her trim to whatever the, the range is. I think on the seven, four was six units of trim and, uh, and stand the, the thrust levers up. And then modulate the thrust to get to where you need where it needs to be, and then call out the uh, ref speed and rotate at ref. So you just basically just you just do your PM uh, your your PM duties on a very expedited basis, and the guy stays within three miles below three hundred feet. One, two, three, and that's that. So there's it's fun stuff. I'm, I'm mostly concerned about the amount of expired pilots you seem to be encountering. <laughs> I think Greg Peterson shares my concern. Oh, they are getting kind of old stuff, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, the well, in some cases you can't there. tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, here, I'd like to share this. Uh, Steph found the uh, the little meme the that meme. I was talking about. <laughs> so if you're watching the video, you know this little thing. Sometimes you go to websites and you have to do something to prove that prove you're, you're not, not a not robot. A robot. <laughs> Select all squares with Boeing 747. <laughs> Does journalists be like, and then you got to look at the face of this guy sweating and looking like, oh, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Anyway, uh, very funny. Thank you, Steph. Sure. All right. Um, let me move on. Uh, do we answer all the – I mean, Liz, do we do we uh, answer that um, sufficiently that uh, that's what we do to keep our currency and such? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. I was, looking, I was looking for the thumbs up. She was typing it out. I don't look at that stuff. Um, Tarquin. Oh, okay. Oh, boy. This is a good one. The Adventures of Tarquin and Ivor. Dear airline pilot people, it's Tarquin here. I contact you in these troubled times, hopefully to lift some of the emotional burden an emotional burden that may be difficult to deal with in these confusing and troubling times. Now is certainly not the time for cheap humor, particularly at other people's expense. This is a time for unity, brotherly love, and goodwill to all men. But I thought you might want to hear what has happened to our favorite favorite village idiot. Yes, Ivor, the poor delusional fool. Well, where to start? In essence, he has moved house and changed jobs. We can all do that. Simple. No problem. Liz, I believe, pulled the trick off recently. Other people less equipped for the rigors of life. Pilots, for instance, have changed jobs and even moved house. Well done, the pilot community, if any are listening or watching. In this case, I think there may be more to the situation than is first apparent. Firstly, it's Ivor. Secondly, he wanted to move overseas. And let's be honest with ourselves. Who would want him? I believe the trouble started way back in July last year. Mrs. Ivor, poor woman, had cajoled Ivor into taking a short vacation. I'm pleased with my use of American vernacular there. <laughs> I digress. Anyway, the hapless couple somehow managed to make their way to the Isle of Man, birthplace of our hero, as they enjoyed a sun-soaked week, eating well, also watching some motorcycle road racing. And amongst these activities, Mrs. Ivor finds a rather lovely traditional Manx cottage that she rather fell in love with. The pair of them had been considering a move for some time. This looked ideal. 
So the wheels of fate grind into action. First, they must sell the hovel that they call home. Also, I must point out that this favela was in Peterborough. Ask Nick. And by some miracle, another idiot found, is found who wants to ruin their life by living in Peterborough and in Ivor's old house. It's true. One is born every day. It's shocking, I know. By the way, if you have any listeners in Peterborough, I don't apologize. Wake up, guys. It's a dump. Back to this tale of woe. So the authorities in the Isle of Man are contacted. Ivor is Manx, so expectations are high for a smooth ride. But let's give the Manx government a round of applause here, as things did not proceed with all haste. Far from it. The next thing we know, and this is according to Ivor, they're living in a state of limbo in temporary rented accommodation. Now, I think we can all read between the lines and realize that they are in some sort of holding facility. At last, I hear many of you say, and I agree with you, lock them up and throw the keys away. We now enter a long period of inactivity. Well, that's how it appears, but behind the scenes, we can assume that the UK government are seizing the moment and trying to unload the useless bugger on someone else, and the Isle of Man government are backpedaling furiously. The situation goes on for several months. We move into the new year, and Ivor is still in limbo. Limbo, in this case, is spelt internment camp. How is this terrible situation finally brought to a satisfactory conclusion? Well, by compromise. Isn't it always? The sad truth is that they've dumped on poor old Wales. What has Wales done to deserve this terrible outcome? This is the land that gave the world Richard Burton, Dylan Thomas, and Airbus Al. Poor, poor Wales. We can be sure that the Welsh authorities are not overjoyed by this situation. This can be seen by the fact that Ivor has only just been let into the country. He is just over the border, ready for a quick ejection if a good or bad reason can be found. He is in a pretty place called... Tlan Gotlin. I knew you could do it, he said. <laughs> he even gave, gave me a pronunciation <laughs> why, why guide. Why did you get an Indian person to do that? I don't know. That's the only one I could find. Tlan <laughs> uh, Lots of Indians there, apparently. And uh, so he was hoping I'd try to pronounce that, but uh, nope. Had somebody else do it. Anyway, the current situation is that he's living in a country that has a beautiful language of its own. Ivor doesn't speak a word of it. He also stands out like a sore thumb through his sheer ugliness. The Welsh are a proud and handsome race. Again, I give you Captain Al. Also, singing is an integral part of Welsh life and culture. When Ivor sings, cats run for cover. None of this bodes well for his integration into Welsh society. What happens next is anybody's guess. I will try to keep you all updated if I can be bothered. At one time, I thought about setting up a GoFundMe page for him, but I didn't think about it for too long. Well, I must say, toodle pip for now. All the best in your endeavors to educate the frankly thick aviation community. And let's hope you don't hear from Ivor anytime soon. Love, Tarquin Wilberforce Singen Snodgrass, or TWSS for short. Brilliant! I thought that was hysterically amazing. So good. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Tarquin is such a good good writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Poor Ivor, though. Ivor, yeah. I mean, we need to hear from Ivor and get his side of the whole story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stuck in Wales. It's always good to hear from Tarquin and Ivor. And 
you know, the, their adventures. Well, if he does make it to uh, the Isle of Man, I'll be there knocking on his door saying, can I come and stay when the races are on? Because they do have some of the most remarkable motorcycle races in the world there. And they use their regular roads, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's terrifyingly <laughs> dangerous, and they kill <laughs> motorcyclists almost every year. Oh, that's a shame. Because uh, these, the roads are so narrow, and these guys are on superbikes doing hundreds of miles an hour, uh, literally laying these bikes down uh, and putting their heads adjacent to dry stone walls and building corners. And, you know, it's just a nightmare. That's what I call using your head. You could, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to, to paint the stones red. Yes. Very much so. Wow. Yeah, I've heard that. That's one of the things that they're famous famous for there. That and their tailless cats. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And their strange government. Yeah. Now, I did, you notice I didn't pronounce one of those words yet in there, because I didn't know how to pronounce it. Tyndale or Tyndale? I have no uh, idea. I'm not, I'm, I'm not a Manxman. Yeah, I'm not sure. We want to hear you pronounce Thangothin, though. Do you? Thangothin. Thangothin. Okay. Um, I thought she meant me. Yeah, you. But oh, okay. not Nick. Clan <laughs> so, he so, says, "Well done, Jeff. So doable. I knew you could do it." <coughs> Thank Excuse you. Excuse me. Tarquin had 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 uh, confidence. Some, confidence. That's the word. Mm. Confidence. Okay. Misplaced, Tarquin. Misplaced. Yeah. But we appreciate your enthusiasm. You're so mean. Um, let's do one more before we do our plain tales uh, installment. Uh, this is from item nine, James. Uh, hi, Jeff, Dana, Steph, Nick, Riz, and, Riz. Hi, Jeff, Dana, Steph, Nick, Rick, and Liz. Firstly, I just want to apologize that I've had to pause my Patreon contribution for the time being due to reduced income as a result of this outbreak that is engulfing the world at present. This virus has had a devastating effect on me personally, as sadly, last weekend, it robbed our family of my grandfather. To say that we are devastated is an understatement. My grandfather and grandmother were the first two faces um, I saw when I passed my... Oh, my grandfather and grandmother's faces were the first two that I saw after I passed my PPL skills test two years ago and were always supportive of my dream to get into the sky and always offered whatever they could to help me reach my goal. Um, sorry to hear about your grandfather's uh, passing, um, James. And... Um, also, just a reminder to folks that if you are patrons, um, you know, we're not charging anything right now, but completely understand your your decision there. Um, anyway, continuing, just wanted to thank you and the crew for the continued great podcast you deliver each week, despite dealing with your own challenges that our current times bring. It's also great to see Rick back. I also enjoyed his detailed explanations that most folk don't think to explain, present company excluded. A question, if I may, as a UK EASA private pilot license holder, I'm hoping to do some GA flying when I'm in SoCal in November, Southern California. Could any of the crew or community point me in the direction of a good airfield or flight school that I can take a check ride with and hire an aircraft for a few days? I understand I need to go to a district office before this for a license check, etc. But I'm confused what I do after this. Any help would be appreciated. I want to sign off by saying thank you again for helping to keep me sane during this tough time. I hope you and your loved ones remain safe and healthy. 
Best wishes and blue skies. And this is from James Mack in Kent, England. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, so. James, uh, first of all, I'm so sorry to hear about your grandfather. That's that's really terrible and, you know, the ultimate uh, consequence of what's going on with this pandemic. Um but I just wanted to say, um, I know we have a lot of community members who have done this, where they've come over from the UK or from uh, uh, Europe in general to fly or build hours or things like that. And they are probably a much better resource than myself or maybe even anyone else here in terms of what needs to be done. But a good place to start might be to take a look at where you're going to be staying um, and looking for any flight schools in the area. And you might just be able to contact them directly and they could probably tell you exactly what you need to do, what you need to bring with you in terms of paperwork, licenses, all that type of stuff in order to get checked out and do some some flying. Now, the problem is going to be in Southern California, there are hardly any GA airports. So, um, <laughs> no, in fact, I think it's like the epicenter of GA in our country. Across the street. Not airport, probably. Um, I, um, just right off the bat, I know the Long Beach airport's a good uh, place. And then I'm not, I'm not sure how much uh, GA flying they're still doing. And they used to do a bunch of it at, um, at uh, John Wayne um, in uh, Orange County, Santa Ana. But I did send a uh, note to um, Brandon Gonzalez uh, regarding this, so maybe he'll get back with us and have some ideas. But I think he said, well, I'll, I'll really need to know, as as Steph just said, exactly where you're going to be in Southern California, because that's kind of a big geographic area. And uh, if we knew exactly where you were going to be, we might be able to help out a little bit uh, more. And by the way, Brandon Gonzalez, um, podcasting on a plane podcast. Um, he's a a pilot, uh, CFI, and air traffic controller out there. Yeah, I agree. And, and like I said, I think um, we might get some other feedback back on this now that we've read it out because um, folks within the community have done this um, and probably have some better firsthand experience and details. Yep. Well, Captain Alley's one for a start. And Pip uh, as well. Oh, yeah, because yep. they both have uh, – yeah. I don't know if they have – experience right in Southern California, but they do have experience with what you need um, mm -hmm. to to come over here and fly GA and that sort of stuff. I mean, right. I mean, I, I imagine FAA kind of, you know, applies to the, the whole shebang here. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But, but, but what's, what Steffi's saying is it's, it's right on. I, I would, I would reach out directly to, uh, to whatever flight school you're looking at, uh, at uh, flying out of and, uh, and they'd be able to point you in the right direction. Oh, exactly. I just noticed. James Mack is in the chat room. Um, yeah, not far from Long Beach. So, yeah, Long Beach is a good place to start, perhaps. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll get yeah, I, I hear I hear Harrison Ford is uh, quite the fan of uh, Santa Ana Airport, especially yeah. the taxiways. So, uh, yeah, he likes landing uh, on the taxiways there. Yeah, yeah. Orange yeah. County. Millennium yeah. Falcon at that. Well, it's. It's KSNA, so that's why we call yeah. it Santa Ana. But Orange County, John Wayne, that's what most people know it as. So. It was a quiz, a question. quiz question. It was a quiz last night. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I would have gotten that one right. Hey, you'd have got two got points. One, one or two points? All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of fun, this is a really good one. Um, oh, they're all great. Um, Plain Tales this week. And I'm trying to remember the name of The Butcher Bird. So let's have a listen. pilots plain tales the butcher bird in many countries around the world if you find a thorn bush which resembles a tiny meat market 
it might well belong to a perching bird or songbird of the genus Lanius. These shrikes are common in Europe, Western Asia, Tropical Africa and there are even a few species in Australia. Its genus name comes from the Latin for butcher, hence its common nickname the butcher bird. It got its gruesome name from its gruesome habit of parking its prey, often half-eaten insects, small lizards and such, onto the spikes of its favourite thorn bush to be stored there for later consumption. The German name for these birds is Würger, which also means strangler, and by coincidence was also the name given to the Focke-Wulf 190 World War II fighter. At the time, radial-engined land-based fighters were rare in Europe, as many manufacturers believed that the large frontal area of a radial design would cause too much drag on a small fighter. Enter the aeronautical engineer and test pilot Kurt Tank. Tank had seen the United States, particularly the US Navy, make good use of radial-powered fighters, and since there was a shortage of the inline Daimler-Benz 601 engines, a radial made sense. American designs used the NACA cowling, invented by the American National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics back in 27. And not only did Tank adopt this, but he improved on the concept by fitting an oversized spinner to deflect air and reduce drag. He fitted wide track, inwards retracting undercarriage that could withstand a lot of punishment, and instead of the usual cable activated flight controls, designed rigid push rods that had no slack in them and gave the pilot very precise control. The design team also tried to minimise trim changes throughout the flight envelope to reduce pilot workload and fitted an electrically movable tailplane for pitch trim. A vacuum-formed bubble canopy gave excellent visibility and the armament was a central part of the design requirement rather than an afterthought on some aircraft so that the 190 carried six synchronised 7.92 machine guns two of which were quickly replaced by a pair of 20mm cannons. The 190 quickly became one of the most feared Axis fighters of the Second World War, and it was a central part of the backbone for the Luftwaffe's Jagdwaffe, its fighter force. The Royal Air Force started to encounter 190As over France in August 1941, and found it better than the Spitfire in every way except its turn radius. The 190 maintained its superiority until the introduction of the Spitfire Mark IX, which evened up the playing field. Up to that point, as Douglas Bader put it, The Focke-Wulf 190 certainly gave the British a shock. It outclimbed and outdived the Spitfire. Now, for the first time, the Germans were outflying our pilots. They were also outgunning them. For the best part of the year, and until the arrival of the Spitfire Mark IX, the Focke-Wulf 190 commanded the skies. 
In order to develop a better mark of Spitfire, the RAF wanted to know more about this German fighter and were desperate to get their hands on information about it. They preferably wanted to capture one intact so that they could examine it in detail and test its performance. Various schemes were put forward, one of the more outlandish being proposed by squadron leader Paul Ritchie, a decorated fighter pilot. This audacious plan bordered on the ridiculous, but such was the concern about the 190 as that it was seriously considered. The idea was for a German-speaking RAF pilot wearing a Luftwaffe uniform to fly a captured ME-109 fighter, of which the RAF possessed several, made to look as if it had been damaged in combat, and then landed in France at a Focke-Wulf 190 aerodrome. The pilot, Ritchie explained in his autobiography, would then taxi into where the 190s were and angrily shout a stream of German, saying he was a Colonel so-and-so and he needed a new fighter as there was a heavy raid coming this way. With any luck, an airman would see him into a Focke-Wulf and he'd steal it. A slightly more realistic plan was devised by Captain Philip Pickney, an officer in the commandos, and Spitfire pilot Geoffrey Quill. Quill wasn't just any Spitfire pilot. He was the chief test pilot of Vickers Supermarine, having taken over from Mutt Summers, and was already highly decorated, possessing the Air Force Cross at the ripe old age of 23. He had been alternating between flying operations with 65 Squadron at Hornchurch and test-flying new marks of Spitfire. Aptly called Operation Air Thief, it entailed the two men being smuggled into France by boat, where the resistance would lead them to the nearest Focke-Wulf 190 base. Quill would then sneak onto the airfield under the cover of darkness and take off in one of the Focke-Wulf 190s while Piccany and the resistance fighters created a diversion. Privately, Quill did not rate their chances of survival very highly, but then came a remarkable event that rendered such Biggles-style adventures redundant. It was June 1942, and Oberleutnant Armin Faber, the Gruppen adjutant, a pilot who also performed administrative duties, was about to go flying in his new Focke-Wulf 190. The adjutant of Einhundertelf Gruppen Jagerschwaderschwei, the Richthofen wing of the Luftwaffe, was flying with Siebenstaffel that day, and they were scrambled to attack a formation of Boston light bombers. The RAF Boston, otherwise known as the Douglas A-20 Havoc, was an American aircraft that served with various air forces, including the RAF. But it was both slow and poorly armed, so as a day bomber it met with disastrous results. The Luftwaffe pilots were expecting a few easy kills, and even if they met fighters, they knew that their aircraft held a distinct edge. That day, the six Bostons were escorted by three Spitfire squadrons manned by Czechoslovaks, numbers 
310, 312 and 313. Whilst they engaged the 190s over the channel, the Bostons fled the scene and all landed safely, but the fighters were fully occupied. Despite being outnumbered, the superior German aircraft downed seven spits with the loss of only two one of which was brought down by a collision which took out both aircraft and killed the RAF pilot. In the heat of an engagement, it's easy to lose track of other aircraft, and if your fight drifts a few miles away, it's not hard to become completely separated from your colleagues. Armin Faber was desperately defending himself from the aggressive attacks of Sergeant Frantisek Trajna, and since only one of his cannons was working, he was trying hard to disengage. The fight drifted over British soil, Exeter in Devon to be precise, where, after much high-speed manoeuvring, Faber flew an Immelman turn into Sun and met his opponent head-on. As the fighters closed, Trejna saw his tracers dance all around the 190 with no strikes, but then there was a jolt as part of his starboard wing flew off and a splinter hit him in the right arm. The Spitfire went into a spin and burst into flames, forcing him to bail out. Wounded by the shrapnel, the Czech landed hard from his parachute descent and broke a leg. Farmhands came to help him and he told them, The bastard got me! His spit crashed near Black Dog in Devon. Faber looked around and took stock. The ground beneath him didn't look familiar, and after all that turning, he wasn't sure exactly where he was, but then he saw the sea and headed towards the coast. What he had actually spotted was the north coast of Devon and the Bristol Channel, and flying visually, he headed towards it instead of south. Had he bothered to check his compass, he might have seen his error. After crossing a body of water which he assumed to be the channel, he spied France, except that it was the south coast of Wales, and getting very short of fuel, looked for an airfield to land at. Spying one, he overflew it, waggled his wings, and landed. On the ground at RAF Pembrey, the duty pilot was Sergeant Jeffreys. He spotted the visitor, and his jaw dropped when he realised that it was a German fighter. Grabbing the nearest thing he had to a weapon, he told his men that when the aircraft landed they should direct it to the dispersal. As the slightly confused Faber taxied his aircraft to a halt, Jeffreys jumped up on the wing, and the enormity of his mistake suddenly struck the German as the sergeant thrust a signal flare gun into his face and ordered him to surrender. The German pilot was so despondent that he actually tried to shoot himself, but was disarmed before he could do any damage. After all, it was Faber himself who had personally handed over the written order from Reichmarschall Hermann Göring to his commanding officer, which stated clearly that no Focke-Wulf fighter was to cross the channel and must turn back to France upon reaching the halfway point, an order that he had disobeyed. 
Faber was driven to interrogation under the escort of Group Captain David Atchley, who, fearful of an escape attempt, kept his service revolver aimed at the Luftwaffe pilot for the whole journey, at least until the car hit a pothole when the jolt caused him to discharge his weapon by accident, nearly hitting the unfortunate German and putting a hole into the door of his Austin Cambridge. As nobody wanted to risk crashing it, now that they had a chance to examine this remarkable fighter, Faber's aircraft was dismantled and transported by lorry to the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough. There it was repainted in RAF colours and given the serial number Mike Papa 499. Flying trials were carried out and mock combat missions flown against a Spitfire that proved invaluable at assessing how best to modify the next generation of fighters to counter Kurt Tank's marvellous design. Its strengths and shortcomings were soon identified and the information passed on to frontline squadrons so that pilots could adjust their tactics in order to exploit the Focke-Wulf's few weaknesses, such as its sluggish performance at high altitude. Some of the features of the Focke-Wulf 190 were actually copied and worked into subsequent British fighter designs. When they had finished playing with their Verga, their Butcher Bird, the fighter was dismantled and scrapped in September 1943, although parts of it and some wreckage from Trezhna's Spitfire can be seen at the Shoreham Aircraft Museum near Sevenoaks in Kent. If you ever get a chance to visit, you should also pop into their delightful tea room and gardens, the Old Bakery. And what of Armin Faber? There is some suggestion that he deliberately surrendered his aircraft, but regardless, he became a prisoner of war and was sent to Canada. There he remained, despite two escape attempts, until nearing the end of the war when he was repatriated because of ill health. Faber recovered, and on September the 21st, 1991, he visited the Little Shoreham Museum and donated his officer's dagger and pilot's badge for their display. I cannot imagine the fate of going to a prisoner of war camp in Canada. <gasps> <laughs> the worst yeah, I, I, on the planet. I don't think they bothered with barbed wire around the outside. They just put it up so far north. Oh, you stay here. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. You'll be no, okay. No, it's just all the honor system. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> They'd be so polite yeah. and inviting. Oh, yeah, no, it's okay. Absolutely. We're sorry. We'll just stay here. It's okay. Sorry. Just kidding. What, you know, I have to admit, I was a little confused when I first listened. I had to re-listen to that middle section because I got. I thought the name that you're using for the British Spitfire pilot doesn't sound like a British name. And then I realized, oh, it wasn't a Brit. It was a Czechoslovakian? Uh, yeah, oh, yes. Uh, so I didn't, we had, I didn't know that uh, the Czech... I uh, see. I don't know a lot about World yeah, War II. Yeah, we, we, uh, we had a lot of pilots from uh, Czechoslovakia and uh, 
Poland, Romania, France, uh, Norway, uh, that all escaped uh, across uh, the channel to uh, the United Kingdom. And wherever possible, the RAF uh, trained them in our ways and formed squadrons trying to keep the nationalities together so they'd have a lot of comradeship. Uh, and um, although it took some time, I think, for the hierarchy to realize what a valuable asset these uh, guys were, um, they performed marvelously, uh, in particular one Polish squadron, I think 303 squadron, um, was uh, one of the highest, or uh, it's not absolutely certain, but we think it's, they were the highest scoring um, Battle of Britain squadron, which considering that they uh, joined the Battle of Britain late, <laughs> they've already made operational sort of a month into that period, mm. uh, they did damn well. But they were a lot of these guys were exceptional pilots. I guess the name, the last name, sounded sort of Germanish, you know. <laughs> so I was thinking, wait, what? Which one is which? Which? <laughs> and so I, that's why I have, you know, probably because I wasn't paying close attention or whatever. But uh, anyway, a great story, and I'm sure that that uh, German pilot was quite surprised when he realized that he had just landed at a, a British airbase. Yes, a uh, wee bit of a mistake there. A Although uh, th- I, I have heard one story that uh, he had um, d- deliberately uh, hmm. decided to defect with his aircraft. Ah, had that been the actual case, I think they probably, you know, and he kept saying, him send, to Canada. Me, "Send me to Canada. Send me to Canada. Send me to Canada." I love it. That was a good one. I really enjoyed that. All right. Um, Let's see. Why don't we continue our feedback with uh, item 10? Nick, are you up for uh, reading this one? Most certainly. This one's addressed to Liz, which is rather nice. Oh, we should get Uh, Liz to do it then. (laughs) We should. She's shaking her head. No. Okay. Okay. Uh, I've attached an audio feedback question along with a couple of photos which go with the story. I recorded this some time ago, but uh, had failed to put it all together to send. But right now I have plenty of time. The gist of the question is about some wingtip vortices I think I felt whilst walking near Vancouver Airport. Uh, The picture shows two water spouts. Uh, So I'm wondering if these could have been caused by the aircraft. The picture actually shows them after they had almost diminished to nothing, but they'd gone up to about 50 feet. But I was uh, too in awe to think of getting a picture right away. Anyhow, please pass along to the crew my appreciation for the show. Uh, duly done. Uh, my apologies to Jeff and Dana for my MD-80 joke. Uh, the DC-9 family is actually one of my favorite aircraft. Strange man. Uh, to fly on. Oh, to fly on. Okay, fair enough. Well, if you're sitting up the front, they're not bad. And I recently had a very nice ride on a uh, Boeing 717 in Hawaii. I'm very glad to have Rick back on the show. I always enjoyed his in-depth, cricket-inducing explanations. And that's from Pat, an airline passenger guy at uh, Charlie Yankee Yankee Juliet, which is uh, Victoria Airport uh, in British Columbia, I guess. Yep, it sure is. And are we ready to play his uh, submitted audio? Certainly. Let's do it. Hello, Liz and the rest of the crew. This is Pat, an airline passenger guy from CYYJ. I have a strange story and a question about unseen forces around airports. A few years ago on a beautiful May morning, I had a few spare hours to fill in Vancouver, B.C. 
and decided to go for a walk on the Iona Causeway near YVR, the Vancouver International Airport. The Iona Causeway is a man-made structure which extends several kilometers out onto the mudflats surrounding the airport. It passes directly under the flight path onto runway 8 left, so it is an excellent place for photography of birds, both kinds, the composite ones and the ones descended from dinosaurs, such as great blue herons and MD-80s. As I said, this particular May morning was spectacular, with crystal clear skies, shirt sleeve temperatures, and not a breath of wind. Eight left was the active landing runway that morning, so as I walked along, every few minutes an aircraft would pass just a few hundred feet overhead. Between aircraft, there was an almost perfect silence. And now for the strange part. Cue some theremin music, if you have any. It was in one of these gaps that I heard a strange sound approaching rapidly from behind me. It sounded just like a tarp flapping on the back of a truck at high speed. But this is a pedestrian-only path. The sound made me turn in some alarm, and to my surprise, I saw nothing. The sound moved past me and out onto the mudflats, where soon two small water spouts started to form a few hundred feet apart. They rose to a height of about fifty feet, and then slowly dissipated to nothing. Well, that was strange, I thought. A few minutes later, after a few more aircraft had passed, I heard exactly the same sound again, but this time with no water spouts. As I continued my walk, I would occasionally hear the sound again, moving around, sometimes close, sometimes at some distance. Then it struck me, could these be wingtip vortices or wake turbulence? So what do you think? As the crew, you've no doubt spent lots of time near and on airports, have you, ever cons have you ever experienced something like this? Do you think what I experienced could be wake turbulence, or is there another weather phenomenon which could generate sounds and currents like this on a calm day? Or was it really chemtrails all along? As an epilogue, just a few weeks ago, I was on a flight returning to YVR from Toronto on an A321. It had been a beautiful, smooth flight, with absolutely no turbulence all the way across the country, and spectacular views of the coast mountains as we descended into Vancouver. As we made our final turn onto the runway heading, I could see the Iona Causeway below me and realized we were lining up for the same eight-left runway. When all of a sudden, bang! It felt as though we'd driven off the road into a ditch. Some passengers involuntarily shrieked in alarm as one wing dropped and we plummeted several thousand feet. Actually, probably more like ten feet. Then, within a second or two, things returned to perfectly smooth flight and we made a beautiful landing. Then, as we reached the exit point on the runway, I could see the British Airways A380, which had just exited in front of us. I said to myself, I think I know what just happened. Yes, I think he does. I agree. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. I'm sticking with chemtrails. Wait a minute. Well, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> don't chemtrails normally evaporate by then? <laughs> I'm going with that sounds spirits. Like a whale. That sounds like a whale yeah. fart. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard one, actually, so I'll have to go I with your expertise. Have. I actually have. Oh, okay. I, I think he hit the A380's toilet discharge. Um <laughs> But uh, as regard the uh, the two water spouts, well, yeah, it's pretty obvious to me they're a pair of blue whales, uh, <laughs> and uh, they're either using their blowholes or the other end to uh, 
uh, you know, confuse you. They often um, swim around in pairs underneath the uh, aircraft on the approach. <laughs> yeah, at, uh, very common. Vancouver, yeah. yeah. And uh, can I correct you? Can I get you? And his hearing is excellent to be able to hear those whale sounds above the surface <laughs> yeah, of the water. Exactly, yeah. Uh, Go ahead, Dana. That is the Pacific Northwest. It's more than likely the killer whales. Oh, the killer! Can they, can they blow up to fifty feet in the air? Because I, I don't know. I think you'd need a pretty know. big whale to do that. <laughs> so my, my favorite part is how it's all perfectly timed after each aircraft. So it's mm-hmm. uh, they're smart the, whales. They are. I mean, very, they're, they're very. Yeah. And they only do it when there are people there watching. So when the plane <laughs> spotters aren't there, they go off for a holiday. <laughs> yep. In all seriousness, though, Pat, uh, one of my favorite things to do, uh, just what? you know, what? flying what? around. Seriousness. Seriousness. Okay. Practicing steep turns as you come around through 360 degrees, hit your own wake on the way back around. That's how you know you've yeah. hit your altitude. Yeah. I know you haven't because your wake drops at uh, 50, oh, so 500 50. feet per minute. Yeah, yeah exactly nah. right. So you've probably <laughs> lost a few hundred feet. You don't yeah. fool us. If you're, yeah, if you're hitting your own yeah. wake, then you've screwed but I've up. Done a terrible steep turn. <laughs> yeah. No, but that, that's exactly it. It's uh, it's uh, it's wake turbulence, and and the 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 slower you fly, and the dirtier the wing is, and by dirty I mean the more flaps you have out, the more high lift devices you have out into the airstream. There, obviously, that that difference in in, in pressure between the top side and the underside of the wing is going to be more pronounced, which is going to create stronger and 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 more and, and more powerful um, wingtip forces. So that's why we have. Uh, separation guidelines between uh, between uh, aircraft to uh, avoid this very thing. I remember about uh, a year ago, I was uh, short final behind an Airbus 350, actually flying into Hong Kong, and uh, we caught the uh, we caught his uh, his uh, wake turbulence at about uh, 50 feet, and it it rolled us it rolled us quite a bit. And I'm talking, I mean, flying a 747 at close to max landing weight. So uh, these these things these things can even rock a seven forty seven. That's so impressive. It, 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 <laughs> you know, it's you know, it's really surprising to me is how much of a vortices a seven one seven throws out. Is that right? Oh yeah. How many times you've been taken off out of Atlanta, Jeff, and and we're behind a seven one a seven seventeen, and I can't tell you how many times I've I've called up and said, "What are we following?" Because <laughs> it's a it's, they throw. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't get it. But they throw. Why they call a, it the angry puppy. That's yes. an angry puppy. It throws one hellacious wake. I guess but high, yeah. high wing loading or something, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, we don't throw that much of a wake on our airplane. I've been but, I've been caught in some wake turbulence behind uh, the Mad Dog that, uh, you know, if oh, you catch it just right, it, it'll it'll turn you over. Uh, yeah, so I, I think in all seriousness, other than a couple of blue whales out there or orcas, um, I would think that those are vortices, vortices. And there's a place in Boston that I, as a uh, young uh, wannabe pilot, it's called Castle Island. And uh, for us uh, aviators, if you're landing on four right in Boston, you fly right over it. It's... Uh, it's if the airplane had probably come over at about 500 feet, maybe. Um, and so it's very common to hear that sound uh, that you're describing, Pat. Uh, and I don't think I ever re- remember seeing a vortices on the water, um, but I heard that all the time, that vortices sound. Hmm. Um, he's quite a photographer as well. I think that Nick would uh, agree with me. I'll put up on the uh, screen here uh, a photo of his. Uh, that looks like. Is that an eagle? It looks like an eagle. Oh, wow. it's a 
damned angry bird. Yeah, it's a hawk of some sort or eagle, or is it? Could be. Yeah. Mm, not sure. Oh yeah, uh, I mean that the... might have been what caused the bump. That might be it. Not, not the three eighty. <laughs> might have collected one of those. <laughs> We talked about the uh, blue herons. It's funny. He said those were descended from dinosaurs because we have those here as well. And we commonly just refer to them as the pterodactyl birds because they do kind of remind you of <laughs> dinosaurs. Uh, I kind of ignored that whole section. So that's why I, I didn't hear that. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Pat, for that. That was very interesting. Um, item 11. Um, did somebody want to do that or shall I do it? Um, I'll be happy to read it for you. Okay, go ahead. Tom, thank you for your feedback. Uh, positives from the pandemic. It is a segment we run on our weekend morning newscast, for which I am the director. We found a YouTube video from a man in the UK that created a stay-at-home air show with his family. We used his video in our segment right after we featured a real flyover in Kansas City that honored healthcare workers. We get a lot of good feedback from this segment each week. I thought of the APG community might enjoy it. Well, thank you very much for thinking of us, Tom. Uh, and there's a uh, some several links here. I'm sure. Welcome back, Tom. We're now six fifty. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Misfired there. Sorry. Yep. There's some links in in the. Uh, I'm sure you're going to put them in the show notes, Jeff. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, for uh, a very creative uh, person that has created their own miniature uh, air show using. Uh, miniature aircraft, and uh, it's it's quite interesting. Very nice, uh, very nice um, video on uh, somebody's front lawn that they created their own kind of mini air show. It's really interesting. Let me play a little uh, a little snippet of this uh, video. There are a couple of them he uh, includes here, but uh, this is the one uh, produced by the company for which Tom Seagraves works. Welcome back, Tom. We're now 6.56. While a lot of negative and somewhat scary news has been coming out of the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of communities are finding ways to join together even while far apart. Kansas City residents got a surprise after local flight teams took to the skies for an air show. Now that demonstration called Hope Flight was put on by two local flight teams. They say the effort was done to help salute healthcare workers at the region's largest hospitals. One family in the UK put on their own air show at home as well. Now take a look at this video. This is an air show made by the Bridge family at their home. The demonstration was the second the family put on in their backyard. You can see all of the miniature items making it look super realistic. Take a listen. Sounds pretty realistic. No, no, your wings are in 67. Don't do it. No, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> it worked. It's flying. How, how did we do that? And the Mary's County Sheriff's Department ah, is spreading okay. joy of their own this Easter. Joy, the joy, joy. Okay. That's good enough. <laughs> Thank yeah, you, Tom. Don't try that at home, folks. Getting airborne with your wings in 67 is not advised. Not going to be a good day, huh? And I hate to mention no. it, but there's some kind of a metal pipe in in the tailpipe sticking out there. Oh, they've uh, all got one of those. Oh, okay. <laughs> you should check out the uh, the videos that Tom gave us. Uh, very very cute, especially that air show in England. Oh, all right. Um, thanks, Dana, and thank you, Tom. And hope you're doing well. Number 
12. 12. Yeah, this is from Becky, and she is writing to talk about something we talked about last week. I gave some, uh, or I responded to someone asking about how to train their bladder for uh, flights, basically, uh, if they were going to be part of flight crew um, and were concerned about having to use the bathroom frequently. Um, and Becky writes in to bring us back up to 50% here because I was not correct on some of my information. So uh, she says, Dr. Steph, just wanted to add some information to your advice about the listener asking about urinary urgency. I am a pelvic floor physical therapist, and unfortunately, kegels as an exercise can sometimes make urgency worse. We specialized PTs love treating urgency and frequency because we can usually resolve those symptoms in two or three visits. So if time voiding doesn't do the trick, which we talked about you know, trying to just increase the, the time in between going to the bathroom. Uh, her advice, she says, I would advise him to find a physical therapist who specializes in pelvic floor function. And that's from Becky Rausch, physical therapist and big APG fan up in Buchanan, Michigan. Um, so thank you, Becky. I appreciate you writing in and letting me know about that. I had consulted with some information that I had dating back to my residency days, which is now getting, um, you know, uh, medical information changes just like anything else. And apparently the information I have was a little bit out of date. And perhaps um, even though it did uh, bring in the male aspect of things was much more skewed towards um, stuff, uh, techniques that may be more helpful for women. Um, so I actually, um, it occurred to me after the fact that one of my um, very close colleagues is also a pelvic floor physical therapist. And although she also uh, primarily works with women, she started treating men more recently. So I just said, hey, this was new information for me. Can you point me in the direction of some, some additional sources? And she was happy to do that for me as well. Um, and she said what she recommends, and this is pretty technical. So if, if you're in the, the situation where you need professional help, certainly find that physical therapist to help you do this. But she said what she recommends for her, her patients is to do those exercises um, at submaximal um, uh, effort. So 25 to 50% of full uh, contraction if you were going to be using those muscles to help train your, your bladder. So, um, and then just to do very short repetitions with it and not longer ones. So. New information for me. Learn something all the time from y'all. So thank you very much, Becky. Appreciate it. And Good she did job. ask, there was a, uh, a... I've got a suggestion as well. Yeah. Uh, a, a, a wine cork, because... Yeah. <laughs> don't well, don't take... You get the advantage of having a, advice. a drink of wine, uh, and then you can use the cork. Where yeah. are you supposed to put the cork uh, for the male anatomy? I'll leave that to your imagination, Jeff. Since... Okay. How's that going to help with the uh, urinary... Uh... Okay, well, I'll have to... Talk to you well, that's what the cork's for. I wanted to go on just a little bit because uh, Jeff and, and Becky had a little bit of an email exchange. But in, later on in that, she said, am I right that Dr. Steph is a physiatrist? It makes sense that she fits in with you folks. Physiatrists, I think of as the pilots of medicine. They make sure the plane Ooh. flies rather than if the engines uh, make sure the plane flies rather than if the engines run. <laughs> not sure if that's a compliment or not uh, i think so yeah, seems think so. like it was so. but yes yeah. you're, you're correct becky physiatrist here so. thank you for all you folks do as physical therapists we need you guys to help treat and take care of our patients we really appreciate it yeah i just basically told her that you know she said she was a big apg fan and i said wow we have a pelvic floor physical therapist in our apg community unbelievable I'm now a big Becky Roush fan. <laughs> so, um, and uh, she said that she has no connection to our industry, but she remembers the magic of flying as a child. She's 53 now. I remember everyone in their Sunday best. I was so excited when the flight attendant would come get me and tell me the crew from the flight deck had invited me to peek into the cockpit while in flight. 
and then the little metal sets of wings. I would be returned to my seat with a new deck of playing cards with TWA or Eastern on them. And she says she still, as an adult, loves seeing the magic of flight and learning the physics and math that make it possible. So, uh, there's anyway. math. How did yeah, I ever learn to fly an airplane mm-hmm. if there was maths involved? I, uh, and no. I, I actually, I get what she's she's saying now. It took me a second there on that last sentence, which I hadn't fully fully thought through. Um, but yeah, we're we're more the function, doctors. the practical. Uh, um, yeah, you know, if something if something is not working correctly, our job is to figure out the workaround for that and get people back to their their regular routine. Yeah. Oh, I should uh, not forget to mention this paragraph that she wrote, which is lovely. I love the uh, seeming magic of flight and learning the physics and maths that make it possible. I enjoy the thought that you all talk for more than three hours per week because you truly enjoy each other. I think about Liz doing all she does just because she wants to, and she knows it uh, it makes it better. <laughs> She's right. I remember APG without Liz, too. No offense intended. Uh-huh. Okay. Anyway. Uh, the world needs more passionate people that care about what is good. You folks seem like those kind of people. Yeah, we have her fooled, don't we? No, we do, actually. So thank you very much for your kind words, Becky. All right. I love you all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let's see. How about... I don't. Yeah. Uh, item 13. Um, let's see. Texas and Lashock sent this one in. And he said, greetings, Captain Jeff and APG crew. As you know, last week, we or last year, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landings. But way, what may have slipped your mind is that this month, in fact, as I'm writing this, the evening of April 13, it has been 50 years since Apollo 13 lifted off on their ill-fated journey. To commemorate the event, the official podcast of the Johnson Space Center had astronauts Jim Lovell, or is it Lovell? Lovell and Fred Hayes on to talk about it. They shared their experiences and impressions of the flight and offer up some interesting tidbits, like Jim referring to the Saturn V as an old man's rocket. Apparently, it had a rather leisurely acceleration compared to the Gemini rockets. And both of them were fighter pilots, so they were used to some pretty heavy G. And he gave us a link to this podcast, which is just so aptly named, Houston, we have a podcast. Love that. <laughs> so we'll put a link to the uh, podcast in the show notes and also a link to the, uh, uh, what do they call that? The transcript of the uh, podcast as well. Yeah. And it's interesting if you, if you, if you guys and gals are interested, uh, there is a uh, particular Twitter page I've been following for about the next, the, the last year or so. It's called uh, Apollo underscore 50th. And uh, they 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 live tweet uh, the Apollo missions, um, you know, in, in real time as it would happen uh, 50 years ago. Oh, neat. And so, yeah, so you get to uh, you get to see what what the comps were at this point in time 50 years ago. Um, you kind of follow that or uh, follow that along. And obviously, right now they're 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 in the middle of Apollo uh, 13th on their on their way back to uh, to Earth here. So it's quite interesting. So it's Apollo underscore 50th, and it's a, it's a really good follow. All right. I will second that. I guess I'll have to follow then as well. And uh, we'll put that in the show notes if I remember to do that. All right. Um, have you ever flown? I know, Rick, you have a lot of hours uh, in your logbook of uh, 747s. I thought they only had four engines. Yeah, I thought so too, apparently. But uh, I see one with uh, with five engines here and one with a very interesting uh, interesting uh, arrangement here at the top of the uh, 
of the uh, upper deck here. So this one here is from uh, Stewart in Edmonton. He says, uh, greetings, APG crew. Hope you're all well and healthy in a world gone slightly bonkers. Congratulations to Miami Rick on the upgrade. Great to see him back on the crew. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be back. Um, he says here that I was watching uh, airclips.com and came across this video of a five engine 747. My question would be to Miami Rick, have you ever driven the 747 <laughs> with a spare engine? Uh, no, I haven't. And I haven't flown it either. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I guess these are the kinds of things a guy looks uh, at on the internet while, when suffering enforced incarceration for us uh, UK expats stuck in the frozen tundra of Edmonton, Canada. Is just an extension of what's been happening since last October. LOL. Looking forward to the 2021 air show season. We're all going to have a lot of fun. Best wishes to you all. And no, no, I haven't flown a, a, a 7.4 with a fifth uh, with a fifth engine on here. Now, this this particular picture you see here, it's a uh, it's the Pratt and Whitney uh, 747 test bed. It's based on a uh, on an SP uh, airframe, which is a slightly shorter 7.4. With uh, a lot longer range and a few different things, the you know the flaps are different and a couple other things. Um, but the 747 uh, does have what's called a fifth pod, which is a position between the wing root and engine number two, which is the inboard engine on the left hand side. And uh, if you ever have a chance, you look under the left wing there, and between engine two and the and the wing root, there's going to be a plate that can be removed. And an engine can actually be placed there. And that's how uh, passenger 747s uh, get to uh, ferry engines around uh, when uh, an engine change is required somewhere else. Now, obviously, these these uh, these uh, engines are flown um, not not all the time. And when they are, uh, the, the proper calculations are made for added drag and the, the required fuel and all that stuff. And I imagine... Um, it's, uh, it takes quite a bit of, uh, of, of fuel to carry that, uh, that engine around under the, uh, under the, the wing there. That's not doing anything. Uh, I have, however, flown, uh, uh, 747s and 777s uh, for that matter, uh, all freighters with, uh, engines inside, um, the 74, um, it can carry its, its own engine at just unassembled. So you just put them in a pallet, bring them to the bring them onto the uh, the main deck there, no problem. Uh, for the triple seven, triple seven engines are considerably larger, G nineties. Uh, uh, those actually you have to break them apart. You, so you, you take the, the the fan casing off because a G ninety engine is about the 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 width of a of a seven thirty seven, and the the later G ninety engines are slightly larger with the cowling on all. So you can't take those. Uh, completely assembled into the main deck of the 7.4 because they're they're just too big. So you take those apart, you take the fan casing off, you separate the fan casing from the core, you load it that way, and then you fly the engine. Um, so that's the only the only way that I've actually carried engines around. But uh, no, it's favorite. This is a very very interesting picture here. You have the uh, 7.4 with a kind of a wing looking thing on the on the upper deck there, and a small engine. Yeah, I, I have it up on the. Uh, if people are watching the video, they can see the very weird configuration. Must be some kind of a test bed somewhere up in Canada. I know he's from Edmonton, but this uh, video right. or photo must have been up in Canada as well because there's a Nolanor seven thirty seven. Don't they play oh, two hundreds yeah. in the background there? Yeah. They go up all the way into the Arctic and do some interesting work. Rick, Rick, I remember that SP often being called a slough. Well, what's that stand for? A sloth. Slough. Yeah. S L U F. 
I, I don't know. Short, I uh, little, ugly you haven't, you haven't heard that. Oh. No, I haven't heard that one. <laughs> which, is, which is better <laughs> than the kind of like kind of like the B fifty two called the buff. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. But because it's uh, you know short. In the, in yeah, the, in the yeah. 737 was called the fluff. <laughs> little ugly effort. <laughs> Fellow. Fellow. Yes. yes. Um, Fellow, exactly. Yeah. So, Rick, uh, I, you may have said it and I just didn't hear it. Um, the Do all the 747s have the provision to carry that fifth engine under the wing? All the ones that I've seen, all the 400s that I've okay. flown, and uh, all you know, I'm talking about 400s. I've never actually done a walk around around a 200. Yeah. Although I have seen pictures of all 200s. In fact, a a, a South African Airways dash 200 comes to mind uh, with a uh, JT9 engine on the fifth pod. So hmm. I believe it's provision for all of them. I'll I'll have to check on that to okay. to make sure we're about 50. percent But yeah, uh, just curious. But uh, yeah, it, it it makes sense that it would be. Okay. Very good, very good. Well, believe it or not, looks like we've made it through the entire feedback folder, which is great. Just a Woo. perfect timing. Yeah, woohoo. Yeah, we're going to talk about yeah. now. Well, we're going to talk about how people can learn more about the Airline Pilot Guy community and crew and buy merchandise if they want, t shirts and that sort of thing. We have, uh, oh, uh, a couple of the books mentioned, including the one that Rick had mentioned. Earlier today, the uh, what was it called? The um, uh, cor- corrosion, corrosion corner, or, corner like or, something? or tales from corrosion. Yeah, corner? yeah tales from corrosion corner. Uh, Fantastic, and it's it's funny because a lot of people that are that are named on that book, I I know personally. It's like, oh, so the that's uh, that was you back then, huh? So, uh, <laughs> so that book and others are um, available or listed on the APG library that's uh, managed by our librarian Tiffany. And uh, that's also a place that you can go and check out on our website. And uh, the Plain Tales page, again, uh, the Plain Tales are great to listen to just on their own. But if you want to um, see more uh, photographs and some supplementary information regarding the uh, Plain Tales, it's available there on the Plain Tales page of the website. And also, I should mention that the Plain Tales is also available as a separate podcast. And if you do subscribe, which you all should, whether you um, listen to audio podcasts or not, uh, because that will really help out uh, Captain Nick's Plain Tales and also by reviewing the, um, uh, the Plain Tales, and that will make it uh, more available to other folks out there looking for that sort of thing. So that and much, much more on our website, including our APG community calendar. And then one of these days, when we're finished with this whole pandemic thing, we'll be doing more meetups again, and information about that sort of thing can be found on the ABG community calendar. And we're also on social media. We are. There's three social media sites, uh, websites where you can find us. One is Twitter. Just search for the handle at APG Crew. We're all there, and our individual Twitter information is pinned to the top of the page. You can also head over to Facebook.com slash Airline Pilot Guide. Lots of good information being shared there by uh, the crew and also our community members. And also Instagram at APG Crew. So we hope to see you on the social meets. Yes, and now, uh, as we always do, I'm going to go ahead and see if I can find the hidden microphone located in the um, lavatory of the uh, APG headquarters building. Let's see. Okay, yep, yep, I hear it. Sounds like Hillel must be here because the shower's running. Hello. 
Hello. Time. Time for slack. Somehow I don't think that was the shower. What? Oh, that was the shower. Yeah. I it thought is a the shower. first one was something else. No, it was a shower. You Just sure? A, yeah. Doesn't smell like a shower. You talking about this? <laughs> you should go before you take a shower. Ah, that hell L. What are we going to do with him? Anyway, come over here. Yeah, would you towel off a little bit more, please? No, no, don't take the towel off. Dry yourself off. Okay, thank you. All right, here we go. He's going to tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you very much, Hillel. Now get back in there and do whatever it is that you were doing. Yes. I do mind. All right. With that, anything else? Oh, yeah. We need to uh, thank again our producer and director, Liz Piper in Toronto. And uh, until next time, wishing all of you clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. See y'all. Auf Wiedersehen. Asa la baby. Be safe out there. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall oh, I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy